All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Lock onto something and focus on it. Let your eyes narrow in and frame it visually in your head. That object or thing you're locking onto just became a cinematic moment. Creatively, you frame something you saw to tell a story. The way films are told is through visual framing and tapping into a creative look that fits the narrative of what you want to tell. Think of your favorite action movie. Every edit and camera angle is specifically chosen to convey the tension or rapidness the filmmakers wanted to put into that story of that car chase or gunfight. Now think outside the frame, literally. Those black bars that come up sometimes that you see on the top, bottom, or sides of your screen are most likely put there on purpose. It used to be common to see a box style frame or 133 to one or four by three. Filmmakers would work creatively in early Hollywood to work within that square frame and they were met with great success. What changed though was widening that frame, pushing the boundaries of the literal film to push tone and emotions to a larger than life format. Just like how you naturally locked onto an object, filmmakers try to capture that feeling on screen. That intense focus became desired. The widescreen format made film more natural and real. The wider the frame, the bigger the story felt. The drama was all the way to the sides of the canvas and felt like it can go on and on and on. And welcome to this episode of Worthy, where we are talking about On the Waterfront. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And the biggest thing that stood out to me when I first watched On the Waterfront was not that, hey, it's Marlon Brando. Hey, this is an iconic movie. It was the actual visual in the frame that I was seeing. And what I was seeing was a widened frame. It filled the screen that I was watching on. And and previously for the prior 26 movies in that had one best picture, I was used to that box style frame, that 133 to one or four by three. And I was used to it. I liked it. But when all of a sudden the movie expanded and that frame became more and I was and it was like trying to bleed out of the screen I was watching on. I realized how important widescreen format was and how important aspect ratios are to tell a story. And for me, seeing that visual is almost as important or a bigger step than colored film. It's such a nuanced thing that I don't think many people can truly appreciate and understand. But for me, seeing the screen become that cinematic feeling to have that visual cue that, hey, this is a movie really changed my perspective, especially when I was watching this movie. And I came out of this movie appreciating it, appreciating it way more than I did the 26 films before it. It's funny because when we started this, we were watching it on a DVD, a collection that you have. I forget what collection that was. Yeah, it was an Ilya, it was actually an Ilya Kazan box set that Martin Scorsese had curated and oh, made himself. Yeah, right. That's very cool. But we started it up, and I think because you've seen this already, and you kind of knew that this would be a turning point for aspect ratios. And we started it, and it was playing in four by three, and you were like, "Well, this, this isn't right. No, this can't <laughs> be right." So then we switched over to. Apple and we watched the the Blu-ray version I think it would be like the probably the most recently restored version probably the same version that Criterion has as well and yeah then it was widescreen 1851 so it immediately felt different right like it felt like we were watching something new it obviously adds to a modern touch that like you know it's what most of the movies that we see and kind of grew up with in that same kind of widescreen format so it felt like familiar and it was interesting to see 
a little bit odd with black and white just because our kind of relationship with the four by three and the square format that we're kind of been used to has usually been black and white. I mean, there's been a few Gone with the Wind color films here and there, but we've come just so accustomed to this this kind of boxed frame and it does really free us and open us up more. And I think it, it leads to a lot of questions about how the film was originally showed, you know, like in what format, since there's three different formats, they kind of decided to leave us with now as viewers in the modern era and to kind of figure out for yourself, what's the best aspect ratio, whether it's one, six, six, one, one, eight, five and one, three, three, one. Yeah. And you know, speaking of those three aspect ratios, the criterion collection actually presented and released all three of them at the same time uh, in 2013 and uh, they explained their reasoning and I think that's actually the best way to put it of, of what was going on at that time and, and how that has developed over the over time and, and why we have to choose those aspect ratios so Criterion wrote in 1953 Columbia Pictures was transitioning to the new widescreen format and declared that all its upcoming films including on the waterfront would be suitable for projection in any aspect ratio from the full frame of 133 to 1 to then widest standard of 185 to 1. The customary frame of European cinematographer Boris Kaufman, who had filmed 12 Angry Men and Baby Doll, split the difference at 166 to 1, so that all that was required was for him to leave extra room at the top and bottom of the frame and make sure that nothing essential would be lost in the widescreen presentation. At its premiere in 1954, on the waterfront was projected at 185 to 1. Over subsequent decades, millions of television viewers became accustomed to seeing the film with the open mat 133 to 1, framing a presentation that has carried over into the home video era. And for the first time, Criterion is presenting the film in all three aspect ratios that the viewers can compare and choose the version that they prefer. And I've seen it now in 185 to 1. I watched the 133 to 1 you said you watched the 166 to 1 version. And uh, after watching it, I think the 185 to 1, how it was originally presented, feels to me like the best way to show this movie. And that's more for the tonality of it and what it's trying to get across and, and, and the cinematic moments that it has in it that makes it distinct compared to everything else that came before it and many others that came after it. Yeah, that's specifically why I actually tried to go out of my way to find the 1661 version because I know you're going to watch those two. We originally watched it on widescreen, so I was like, well, let's have the third opinion here. And obviously, as you can imagine, with a square frame, you have much more headroom since we're cutting off the sides. But what that allows is like a much wider, kind of grander frame, yet it's not really like taking up your entire modern screen. So it's. It feels dated, right, for most people that are just watching movies. If they're seeing something with those black bars on the side, it's an old movie. And it's for a lot of people, it's something they don't want to watch, which, you know, it's fair. I, I don't think you should judge a film basically just on that, obviously. But if you're moving beyond that and then you're looking at different frames, it, what happens is that you're slowly cutting off more and more on the top and, and bottom of the frame. And with 185, you're, you're cutting off so much where it's kind of it's drastically changing the way you're seeing the movie because it's drastically cutting out elements and it's cutting out the setting and and part of like the lower half of their bodies sometimes it's turning like close-ups into extreme close-ups where it's like just focus on their mouth and even their chin and forehead is being cut off as they're as they're talking which I think does help to what you're saying where it's it's very dramatic and it feels modern and it feels very intense because this is like a burning wick of a film but for me, it was like the mixture of the close-up from 185 and the still the width of the frame in 166 because what happens is that 
there's elements that are cut off when you're seeing in just the widescreen, the 185, and elements that I think are really important. I think the setting of this film, and I won't go into too much detail because we're going to talk about the film here in a second, but it's very important to kind of see where we are, where we are in Hoboken on the water and seeing the ships in the background, and I think that is where my biggest argument for the 166 version comes in is that there is a an important boat in this movie that's not really talked about. It's kind of just seen in the background, but it is important, I think, to to Terry, Marlon Brando's character, in a way that I haven't seen a lot of really people talking about. They talk a lot about the pigeons, the hawks, and everything like that, but what happens when you're watching it in widescreen is that it's cutting off part of the background. It's cutting off part of the city, the, the cool, beautiful onset locations that they were able to film on, and it's cutting off part of that boat, and and when you watch it in that widescreen aspect ratio, you're kind of like missing aspects of that film. And it's it's cutting off so much to me that it becomes distracting in a way. And the 166, I think, still adds that. You still have the height room. You know, no one's head's being cut off. No one's chin's being cut off. And it still feels natural, like everything is framed to kind of to fit perfectly within the frame itself. And then one through three, I think you're still, you're seeing everything. I mean, it's everything that they recorded originally and nothing's being cut out. But in a way it kind of loses some of that intensity because it's so wide and so spread out and, and people almost feel really far from you because they really pack a lot of people in, in the frame in the movie. So it, it, I could see why like someone would like each different version of this movie, like the one, three, three, like purists or like, this is exactly how they shot it. We should keep it that way. And the people that are like, no, this was, this is like perfect representation of the time and transitioning and trying to get people to not watch movies on their TV anymore and kind of expand and give them a reason to go out and to go to the theaters, probably because they were losing money with TVs on the horizon. So I see kind of both sides of it, but I know you in particular have a preference as well, right? Yeah, I, I love the widescreen aspect of it. I Again, like just saying, going back to the whole cinematic aspect of it and, and that feeling of it, to me is important because it seems like that was the original intention to for how this movie should be presented for audiences and and i get what you're saying and, and i love uh 133 to 1 i to me i think a lot of movies should be shown that way i think it's a lot of fun it it has that old time feel i would you know and at the same time though when you do see the black bars especially on these huge wide screens that everyone has at home now it can feel distracting it can feel so out of touch from like what you're used to that you're like hold on that that doesn't feel right but then i also do like 166 to 1 because it does expand and it does get a little wider where you only have a little bit on the sides. You know, I, I'm trying to think of like recent movies and the only one that actually comes to mind is a movie like Jackie. Um, and I think Spencer was also filmed like this too. It's, and it's most commonly called like the European, you know, format for showing films where it's like little slivers on the side that's black. And I think that it still is up the screen from the top and the bottom. You still have that width, but it also makes you feel that, hey, this is on film. This is something a little more antique uh, to the format and the art of it, which is great. And I, and I love that. But for this movie in particular, when I first watched it in widescreen and I saw that that twist and that turn from the movies before to now, it really, to me, signified a huge shift in Hollywood to where, you know, where the industry was going, what audiences were feeling, what movies were going to be coming out. And that's exciting. That's exciting to see literally as literal as possible on a screen that the it's opened up it's becoming more that there's a next step beyond just colored film beyond just sound uh in a movie it's weirdly fascinating because i feel like we're at this kind of same nexus point in film right now where 
you know, there's so many people and there's so much great content being just pushed to streaming services where no one has to even leave their living room. They can just, you know, watch it. I don't need to tell you that, you know, if you're listening to this, you do that already, right? So, but we're in this point where there needs to be a reason to go out to theaters. You know, you can get alcohol at theaters now. You can dine in at a theater. You can watch a movie in Screen X, which has screens on the side as well as the screen in front of you. You can watch things in 4DX. Like, they're doing everything to try to get you to go out to theaters and not just watch something on your TV, much like we're at this moment in time where they see the risk that TV is, is kind of causing and, and the risk that it'll eventually just take over and kind of consume the audience in, in a way that we are kind of at this point now. In a weird way, it's almost like this is the start of the death of a movie theater. And, and I don't think we've like seen, oh, don't say that. I know I, I don't want to say that because we both love going to the movies so much, but it almost feels like this instance in time is like the beginning of the end of a movie theater. And we haven't gotten to that end point. Yes, I know, but this feels like it started that panic in theaters and, and what else can we do? You know, what other format can we introduce? Like how can we draw people out and, and bring them to the theater? So I just found that weird connection that we have. And I feel like we're in a similar point of time right now. You just start making really good, compelling movies that are different. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm being fully serious right now. And you know, the Batman, the, the new Batman movie to me signifies a huge change in some ways because and and also another movie everything everywhere all at once those two movies coming out at the beginning of 2022 after everyone has shit on movies from 2021 after we had the 94th oscars which had plenty of controversial moments which didn't celebrate movies at all seeing those two movies come out and really kick ass says a, a lot to me about where filmmakers are and they actually are still trying there they looking they are looking for more and they're looking at tone they're looking at how do i ground something that for the last like two decades has been taking up sky high to a point where people are so fed up with it how do i bring it back down and how do i still incorporate those fantastical moments but make it so real and and honest and and endearing for people to watch it and to feel like good coming out of the movies and and those two movies honestly made me feel great about going to the movies and seeing those it felt great to see a different batman on screen it felt great to see this kick-ass you know older you know asian woman just like going through the multiverse but in a non-superhero way in this most like i'm just trying to reconnect with my family type of it's it's so great and so that's why when we talk about this shift in in aspect ratio which like aspect ratio are you kidding me it's it 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 matters it adds to so much of the story and and, and how you're taking it in that it, it's undeniable to say that it doesn't matter you know it, it's so crucial and so important and i think it's probably really important that we answer that question right now and that question is is on the waterfront worthy of the best picture award of 1954 On the Waterfront, an ex-prize fighter turned New Jersey longshoreman struggles to stand up to his corrupt union bosses, including his older brother, as he starts to connect with the grieving sister of one of the syndicate's victims. Terry Malloy is a former prize fighter coerced by corporate union boss Johnny Friendly into luring fellow dock worker Joey Doyle onto a roof. Joey falls from the roof and Terry is visibly upset because he believed that the union thugs 
were merely going to talk with Joey about his rumored plan to testify against Friendly to the Waterfront Crime Commission. The other dock workers play deaf and dumb, in fear for their lives. Terry reconnects with Joey's sister, Edie, who shames the local priest's father, Barry, into calling the dock workers to a meeting. Barry tries to persuade them to stand together, but Friendly has sent Terry to report on what is said. Terry is mocked by the other dock workers before the meeting is broken up by Friendly's men. Terry helps Edie escape, while Timothy K.O. Dugan is persuaded by Father Barry to testify. Friendly reveals to Terry that Dugan testified behind closed doors, and the next day, Dugan is killed by a load of whiskey set loose by Friendly's men. Father Barry makes an impassioned speech reminding the longshoremen that Christ walks among them, saying that every murder is a crucifixion. Terry is still unwilling to testify even after he is subpoenaed, while the other dock workers also refuse to testify. Terry's guilt and regret grow along with his feelings for Edie as he sees her relentless pursuit of justice. A crime commission investigator reminds Terry of his last great fight, which he threw for a bet after Johnny Friendly bought a piece of him. He confesses his role in Joey's death to Father Barry, who persuades him to confess to Edie. Horrified, Edie runs away. Friendly's men witness Terry's conversation with the investigator, and Friendly tells Charlie, Terry's brother, to persuade Terry to keep quiet by offering him a cushy job. Terry resists and Charlie pulls a gun, which Terry gently waves away. Terry expresses regret about throwing his best fight and blames Charlie for having set up the fix, ruining his career. Charlie gives Terry the gun and tells him to run. Terry goes to Edie's apartment, where she refuses to let him in. He breaks in and insists she loves him and they kiss, before Terry's name is called through the open window. The men down on the street shout that his brother is waiting and Terry runs out to help him, with Edie following. After nearly being run down by a truck, Edie and Terry find Charlie's body hung on a hook in the alley. Terry goes to a bar to shoot Friendly, but Father Barry distracts him while he is waiting and the other Union men run out to warn Friendly. Barry persuades Terry to fight Friendly by testifying in court. Terry gives damning testimony to the commission and Friendly is cut off from his powerful friends while facing indictment. Friendly bars Terry from any union jobs. Refusing to leave the city with Edie, Terry appears at the dock for the daily ritual where workers are chosen from the assembled longshoremen. Everyone is called to work except Terry, who taunts Friendly outside the nearby shack, shouting that he is proud of testifying. Friendly goads Terry into attacking and is getting beaten until he calls for help from his thugs, who stop just shy of killing Terry. The longshoremen refuse to work unless Terry is allowed to work as well, and Joey's father pushes Friendly into the river when he tries to bully the men. Father Barry tells a badly injured Terry that he lost the battle, but has a chance to win the war if he can walk into the warehouse. Barry and Edie get him on his feet, and Terry stumbles up the gangway to stand before the warehouse, where the boss nods to Terry and tells them to get to work. The men follow Terry inside, ignoring Friendly as he lashes out with empty threats in his fists. The door closes behind them, leaving Friendly out in the cold. On the Waterfront was directed by Ilya Kazan. Written by Bud Schulberg, with suggested articles from Malcolm Johnson and uncredited writer Robert Ziadmak. Produced by Sam Spiegel. Music by Leonard Bernstein. Cinematography by Boris Kaufman. Film editing by Gene Milford. And art direction by Richard Day. On the Waterfront stars Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy. Carl Malden as Father Barry. Lee J. Cobb as Johnny Friendly. Rod Steger as Charlie Malloy. Pat Henning as K.O. Dugan. 
Leif Erikson as Glover. James Westerfield as Big Mac. Rudy Bond as Moose. And Eva Marie Saint as Edie Doyle. First things first, and I've been wanting to to say this and, and present it like this for a while since I first saw this movie. And the opening title sequence, it doesn't say on the waterfront immediately or Columbia Pictures presents on the waterfront. It says Columbia Picture Corporation presents Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. That's the opening title. That's what Columbia and the movie wanted to say first. They are presenting Marlon Brando. And then they say on the waterfront in the movie. And I just want to start that out because I fucking love Brando's performance <laughs> in this movie. This movie and, and this performance particularly is cited as one of the best uh, performances ever given. I I think that's a hard thing to judge and to say, even though I'm one of those people that love to say top 10 all time, top five all time, <laughs> goat of all time type of people. Um, but this is this is pretty fucking good. <laughs> Marlon Brando gives a a performance that I don't think many people have even sniffed or touched. I think it's like you're looking at Daniel Day-Lewis, Nicholson, Hopkins, and De Niro as the only ones that can kind of touch what he put there uh, for On the Waterfront. So I just wanted to start out there because to me that says a lot about how how the production felt about Brando and this performance and what this movie ultimately is about it's about this one person this one person and specifically terry malloy who marlon brando plays but that conflict that this is his movie this isn't a story about a group of people this is a story about terry malloy and his conflict well what i found so interesting is that the way this movie just jumps right into it and it's it's showing it all from really his perspective terry as you know all the all the gang members are kind of trying to rush the man uh or basically trick this man to kind of go up to the very top of the roof where they're kind of waiting there to, to push him off and kill him. And, and they make it seem like Terry doesn't really know this. Right. And that's already the start of like the amazing performance that Brando's giving where he's just like nonchalant, like saying hello to the mobsters as he basically just like is the direct assist to killing this man. And yeah. he like, he doesn't even realize that. And I think starting the movie off that way is like not only bold, it's something that I don't think we've really seen a movie just jumping off like where this opening is like what carries the rest of the movie. It's like the inciting incident is like the second we get into this movie and it's what the whole movie is about continuously. And it's like the regret from Terry's side, the the wonder from Edie's side to kind of figure out who did it. And then the father kind of trying to deal with all of it and try to organize and help these men. So it's just a bold beginning in general. And then, yeah, just like you said, Brando is just like so hard to not look at. And I just it's one of those things where people always talk about Brando and how amazing his performance is much like citizen Kane where people are like, this is the greatest movie of all time. Like you need to see this. And like, you have to agree that this is the best movie of all time. And when you get that, and especially when you like have a lot of friends that are into film and talk about film and people always like bring this up and talk about it and talk about Brando, then it's so hard not to be like, well, why is he so good? Like what makes him better than other actors that also give great performances? And I don't know if I have like a direct answer to it but it it certainly seems like he's different for the time and just the way that he seems really like natural in in terms of like portraying this role while also having a really complex character to play so that certainly helps how well written the character is always helps an actor but it's also his like duality of the way he's he's kind of like a soft guy with a rough exterior and that seems to be like 
the role he plays best. And I think being casted also really helps in this particular role where he can kind of show both sides of him, I think really helps. But Ben, why do you think people always say like he's not the best actor of all time, but at least on the Mount Rushmore of actors of all time? Uh, I mean, there, I think there's many reasons. There's so many points I wanted to hit on that you just brought up, but uh, let's narrow it down. So why people look at Brando, I think that it's, and, and we hit on it a lot in our From Here to Eternity episode, um, because we talked about this shift in using character as the motive for an actor, that the character now becomes so crucial to how the movie goes and, and how the actor approaches that, because it because that can really twist and turn how then the the end product is presented. So for Brando, I mean, everyone talks about he was a method actor, the Stanislavski uh, way of acting, which I try to look and it's just like a way of like breathing. And, and it's essentially just method acting, which is taught in Russian. So it seems a little bit more intense. <laughs> and at the same time, all of those things is what makes Brando Brando. He has given, you know, the two movies that he won for, for On the Waterfront and The Godfather, two very iconic movies. I actually, when you talked about like, oh, everyone talks about this movie, I everyone, you know, I've heard people talk about On the Waterfront, but I never knew what it was about. I never really tried to like hear too much. And that was more because I was like, I don't really watch an old movie from the 1950s. And then when I have the opportunity and I forced myself to like sit down and watch all these movies, when I reached this point, I was like, holy fuck, why didn't I watch this movie earlier? Because it, it's so different and it's so engaging. And he gives this performance that um, there's particulars I'm going to get into, uh, you know, just like how he's so good and nuanced that you weren't watching that in previous movies. I mean, we love some uh, best actor performances like, you know, we love Clark Gable. We love Frederick Marsh, like you know, on and on and on about the actors that we've talked about before and how great of a role that they played. But it does not feel like how Brando does in this. It does not feel... Like, like the way that Brando interacts within the physical world, how it feels like he knows where everyone's going to move to next, how he's able to receive and react. It, it seems it's so different and it's so refreshing that it's fun. It, it's fun to sit down and watch and to study it. Even if you can't even put a pinpoint on exactly what makes it so great, you can just truly feel this like th- this experience and, the, and this performance happening in front of you that you just can't take your eyes off of. And, and so I love it. So let yeah definitely no I just wanted to comment one more thing on on Brando and I think a a lot of people don't really talk about this when it comes to actors obviously because there's so much to talk about when it comes to a performer and the way they perform across multiple roles like how varied their their characters are whether they play the same character or not and I think for Brando without a doubt you need to watch any of his movies with subtitles on and I know we go back and forth with subtitles or not and I think this is an aspect of what makes him feel so natural in, in roles and when he's kind of like just lost in these characters and he's definitely thinking about these this perspective and he's using the Stanislavski method and, and that's certainly helping him kind of get into the character's mind state. But there's something about his dialect. Like he, and I this sounds like such an insult and it sounds so lowbrow, but it's true. He mumbles through so many of his lines where without subtitles, I could not even tell you what he's saying sometimes in a way that sounds so bad. It's like, you don't want your actor to be doing this. You want your actor to clearly read his lines, but there's something about the mixture of 
having the character read his lines, but also kind of like stumble through them. Like the naturalism of trying to say a line and make it feel like it's authentically coming from your mind and not just from a page that you have to read off of. And I think it's something that Brando does so well where it just feels like these lines are like made up within him. And when he's like trying to get things out, he's like struggling to speak sometimes. And that helps and that makes him fumble words. And whether that's intentional or not, and I really don't think most of the time it is. I think it's just the way brando speaks and the way his mouth is kind of like always like closed a little bit and it leads to him kind of like mumbling words but it makes it feel so authentic and unique and like original in a way it's funny that you actually say that because later in life he started having cue cards and i think on the godfather i think there's a shot of of uh it's a behind the scenes shot of james can uh james con essentially having the entire script (laughs) for what brando had on his chest because brando was just facing him and so, like, that, put that aside. We're talking about the younger Brando, and the younger Brando kicks ass. And, I mean, the older Brando does, too, but the younger Brando really kicks ass, and, and it really culminates in this performance, and it really it, it shows the natural naturalism that actors can present, that they can give off in a role, and that it's still felt today. You know, what we require out of, like, best actor performances, Will Smith aside, uh, you want that naturalism. You want that... I'm going to dive deep into this and, and truly believe this character is there. And it's given some pretty great performances using this like approach that, that, that Brando did and, and many other actors did at the time. It's just that Brando was the first one to really make it commercialized, to really make it popular, to really, really showing your face. So we're going to talk a lot about Brando in this podcast, but let's really open it up to the movie. And you were talking about the opening scene and we talked about the open. I talked about the opening scene in the beginning of this, talking about aspect ratio. So incredibly wide shots. We get this huge wide shot of the harbor in in, in Hoboken, New Jersey, right across the river from where we are. And uh, it just you get quick cuts to everyone moving around, walking around. You get this like really cool high angle shot of Brando holding a pigeon, going, "Hey, Joey, <laughs> Joey, I have your pigeon here." And it, it's it's so like. I, it's not like an Italian mafioso like performance that he's trying to give, but it's such a. It does have that way that all of a sudden it's like oh that comes out of you know Goodfellas would be doing something Definitely. like that, doing yeah. something like that. And and I know for sure Scorsese loved this movie. He's talked a lot about it. He loves Kazan. It, it seems that Kazan is like one of his idols in cinema. So. There's definitely a lot of influence you can probably see from this movie and other Kazan movies and Scorsese movies. But this movie opens up big wide shots and then bam, there Joey falls down the building. It's a dummy that they use. <laughs> it's so it's bad. We have to acknowledge <laughs> how bad it looks. It's a little goofy, but you have to remember for 1954, that was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it was probably pretty disturbing to see. But oh, yeah. It also like, how could there not have been a better looking dummy? Or like, how was that the best dumb, dummy throw? I don't know. I don't know. It's like the one thing in the movie where I'm like, damn, like, how is how is there not a better take at that? You know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's just because I mean, I think they filmed this movie in like 36 days. So I don't know if it was just. Yeah, like, really low budget. 36 days. They didn't want to send the PA up the stairs again to carry <laughs> the dummy up. One of the coldest winters too. I read. Yeah. Like in, in New York or Jersey. Yeah, it definitely seemed like it was. And not in ideal conditions. Like definitely not seems like all. a college level film where you're like you're all standing outside because yeah. you have to get it done. Um, I know John knows a lot about that. God, many cold nights out there. Yeah, very very many cold nights. So the opening scene, it it, it kicks ass. You get to see Brando right away, and then honestly, what it transitions to next is Ava uh, Marie Saint, who gives this kick ass intro to her performance. And honestly, this feels like a a scene that should have happened. At like the end of a movie, that this was the climax, that this was the emotional moment, 
and she really goes for it. She is emotional. The way her voice control is incredible. That's why I think she was a great actress. She's so good at, at keying in and, and knowing how to use inflections. And and she and so she starts out basically being like, who who killed Joey? Who killed my brother? What's going on? And it, it's so emotionally driven that you're caught into the story already. You're looped in. You're like, well, what did happen to Joey? Why yeah. why is Marlon Brando holding a pigeon? Like, who is this woman well, that that's like hovering over Joey's body? Is, it, is she a relative? Is she married <laughs> to him? Like, what's going on? And I think that it captures you so quickly within less than three minutes into the film that you're like, all right, let's see how this goes. And it's so different. I'm, I'm trying to like think of previous movies where they really just jump right into the story like that. And I, I can't really think of many that are like, at, maybe it happened one night where they're, she like jumps off the boat and that's like a big opening to the movie where it's just like, what yeah. the fuck is going on in this movie? But this is like way beyond that where it's just like someone died. And exactly like you said, like, who is this person? Why do we even care that he died? And then you realize that's what the whole movie is about. The whole movie is about this person's death and, and and literally the situation that these men are in and that was kind of like the the tipping point for this entire situation on the waterfront. And I think as a first time viewer, it was jarring in a way where I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I always talk about how I don't really look up. I, all I really knew about on the waterfront is that Brando's in it and he's always holding a pigeon. And that's all I've ever really seen from this movie. And for some reason, with a name on the waterfront, I just assumed it was about war, like kind of being stuck on a, a front line. All but, quiet on the Western Front? Yeah, like something where you're kind of stuck on this water. You're waiting for like the ability to cross or you're kind of stuck there or pushed back there. I thought it was like involving war and World War II specifically. So I was really jarred just from the very beginning that it's about this. And it, it felt very like mobster and, and mafia. But... And I can clearly see how Scorsese like has has drawn so much inspiration from Kazan's career because you can see the, the mobster elements. And this movie does such a good job of of balancing just kind of standard drama with also having a, like a little flair of like the mobsters in there and the way they have their dialogue and their and their vernacular and the way they talk to Terry is very classic mobster. Even to like looking at Goodfellas or Casino, you can like see that direct inspiration there for sure. But yeah, what an amazing way to just kind of like introduce you to this world and and the struggles. And I found it so interesting that Terry just he knows that he's like helping these bad men, but he doesn't really know what they're about to do. And he doesn't know that they're trying to kill him. Yeah, he, he thought that they were just going to lean on him, lean on him, like beat him up a little bit, basically uh, tell him that because he's a snitch, supposedly. I'm trying to remember exactly. Yeah. So basically, Joey was essentially going to do what Terry does at the yeah, end of the exactly. movie, which is tell on. Be a rat. Yeah. You know, be a rat. Say that, you know, there's a gang. There's, you know, they're not following union rules. Like, whatever. That's essentially why Joey was killed. Which is so funny because this movie is basically like how to be a rat, the movie. Which is like for a lot of people, I think we'll get into like the political connections as well. But it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people would ever really make a movie but there's not many scenarios where like being a rat is always highlighted as a good thing and this is like it is clearly a good thing there's no other if ands or but you know like they're going against bad people right yeah so terry takes on like that joey role and so he so immediately terry becomes conflicted because he and you can see it wipe over brando's face of like oh i helped them in a very very bad way i thought i'd help them you know i don't think that terry wants to necessarily be like a gang member for life he seems very like eh, i'll kind of do it whatever he's just lost to... he's like wandering around basically right? yeah he, he's a wanderer i mean there, there's some good lines where he talks about i don't need a conscience or how he he seems so like un, you know non-sympathetic un-empathetic and 
it really helps that character because he starts to develop those emotions of like, Oh, I, I have to, I should help. I am a part of this community. I can be a difference maker. Um, but I wanted to use your, uh, time about the rat and time about movies that are similar to it as a good jumping off point to my next favorite scene, which is literally the next scene in the movie, which <laughs> involves, uh, involves Brando well Terry's character going to bar, which is Johnny friendly's hangout. And you get to meet, Johnny Friendly, and you get to see this gang, get to see how it operates. And this was another one of the scenes when I first watched it. I was like, "This is very different than what I've seen." <laughs> you know, you have a you have lamps and more in the foreground. You have people's heads getting cut off by lamps. So it's great cinematography. The lighting is so good. Uh, you know, they have much. You have a lot of the key lighting in the front and over the pool table in the back. They're all playing on. So really well done and well crafted. And who barges in is Johnny Friendly, played by Lee J. Cobb who's fucking electric in this movie. He was absolutely incredible. I, I don't think people talk about him enough. I think he would have been, this character would have been a perfect Sopranos character. <laughs> and actually, I think that, that... So many of the actors would be, yeah. Right, so many of the actors would be. It takes place in New Jersey, right, where the Sopranos was supposed to be. And I, and I think that that's what makes the Sopranos so good and this so good is because it, it grounds itself. When you watch The Godfather, when you watch Goodfellas, it ha- it's a little out there. You know, you're like, okay, like this probably is what the gang life is like that this is what mobsters are like but it's a little like whoa like i can't really relate to that in on the waterfront of the sopranos you get this more humanistic approach to the characters of these anti-heroes essentially and you're like i'm conflicted because i love these people yeah and, and i love watching it so uh, seeing a guy like lee j cobb and johnny friendly come out that is like that really stuck out to me that really shown a lot to me and I'm going to connect this to the rat thing because I think that this movie and this scene feels very similar to a scene in The Departed. And in The Departed, it's a scene where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is trying to get into the good graces of, of Jack Nicholson's character. It's in the pool of the back of a bar. It's someone, you know, in Honor Waterfront, they knew each other. In this one, they're trying to know each other. But that movie's about the rat. That movie's about who the, you know, you're the rat. No, you're the fucking rat type of thing. <laughs> and so to me, like that movie is about how you perfect yourself as the rat, as an insider. And this one movie definitely had to have influenced it. And Scorsese, Scorsese had to have looked at On the Waterfront for The Departed and taken a few things here or there. And when I look at Nicholson's performance, I see Lee J. Cobb's performance in it. When I look at Brando's performance in The Godfather, I see Lee J. Cobb in it. No, I, I definitely see that. He's... He's really charming. I think some of his like goonies or cronies, they're like so goofy and funny. And they're like the classic like mobster kind of sidekick guy. And it is, you're exactly right. Like you feel very similar to the way Terry does where you're like, these guys are kind of cool. And they're like, let me do like stuff. And I basically don't even have to work and I get paid. And this is like a really easy gig and they seem pretty nice to him. But then on the other side, you're like slowly starting to learn like, oh, no, they're like killing people. They're like abusing so much of these men and and exploiting them. Basically, the men have to pay the mobsters in order to even work that day. So they're basically like taking that money and it builds up quickly with how many men that are there and then using it for suits and, you know, everything a mobster would love. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's it's a corrupt system, but it's still so fascinating to watch. And then when we talk about naturalism and, and acting and really honing into performance, Lee J. Cobb also does that. I mean, the way he moves around the room, the way his like tie is like very disheveled. He's supposed to be the head of this mob, but he looks a little disheveled. And so like, I, I don't even know how to probably describe it. Like he's grabbing at his, 
it looked like he just grabbed out his chest and just like he's stressed. All yeah, the time. he's stressed, yeah. but he's so like on top of it. And one of the things that I really liked was how he would interact with someone. He, they would give him a stack of cash and he'd be like, OK, and he tossed it to someone and go, you count it. And the way that <laughs> and the way that he he does it, I mean, it's such a subtle thing, but the way he does it seems so it seems so fun and energetic. And the way that he gives it to Terry, he's like, here, count it. It's good for you. And then he leans on Terry's back and he's like as slapping him as if he's like a prized horse. And Terry's like kind of OK with taking it. But as soon as he counts like two bills and and uh, Johnny Friendly starts doing this to him, he's like, I lost count. It has no interest. And that's where you start to see that everyone views Terry as dope, as this person who isn't smart, who they can just use to get by. And that's something I think Terry knows about how others view him, but he's unwilling to say anything because either it's too much work to do it or he's maybe too afraid to actually go out there because he's lived he's like gotten by just the way he has and we're going to get to ultimately like probably where the conflict comes from um a little later on but the the point of the matter is is that again you're seeing these naturalistic approaches to acting you're seeing these new ways of filming you're seeing something that you're not used to and it's fun it's something new and exciting that this movie presents and again it's within the first 10 minutes of the film yeah it's, it's definitely is what i loved about johnny's character too is that he's the head of the waterfront here in terms of kind of being the union leader and and really just you know putting these men down but he's not the top of of really the mobsters like we don't really get fully introduced to them but we know that he has a boss and that boss is kind of like watching over him as well i think there's even a scene later on where they like show the boss from behind if i remember correctly yeah well they don't really make mention of who that boss is they and, don't yeah and we'll get there i think when we get to towards the end of the movie but y- you kind of don't know you always a bigger fish which right. i love that aspect of it i think this movie is a perfect representation of that of like there's always a bigger fish there's always someone else uh, ready to either take your place take you out or who maybe you could team up with to take someone else out yeah exactly so it's it's a great start it really gets going and then I think we should jump to the church scene, which really starts to show Carl Malden's performance. He's, again, an electric. He won an Oscar for A Streetcar Named Desire like three years before this movie came out. Brando was in that one as well. So uh, Carl Malden, absolutely fantastic in this movie. And his role is to kind of be like, if you think I think that Terry has the devil on his shoulder and Johnny Friendly and the angel on his other shoulder with Father Barry. And so Father Barry tries to step in. He tries to essentially get people to talk to him and tell him what's going on so that if he has to say something or to encourage them to say something to break down what other gang bullshit is going on, Father Barry's ready to attack it and ready to do it from the right side. So they, so this what happens is there's this church uh, scene where Father Barry tells all the longshoremen to come there because he assumes the gang won't attack them. Johnny Friendly tells Terry to go to that church because he's like, we'll snitch on them. You know, tell me what's going on. You're kind, of, you know, you're still sort of in those good graces where no one suspects you, type of thing. And what it does, it actually creates this really beautiful, you know, dichotomy and this distance that it it's it's fun. And so basically, you have everyone at the front of the church all talking, and then Terry's in the back. So you have this distance between them, um, and it's beautifully lit. And so you can kind of look at it as, well, Terry is sort of still on the good side. But he's about to step out. He's about to join that gang life. And he's in here only because he's not fully there yet. But he's about to be there in his next move if he does accept it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it has the yin-yang kind of relationship where each person is kind of pulling them 
you know, or pulling Terry in either direction, which is, is a really fascinating kind of perspective to put you in as the viewer where you almost have to decide with one side or the other, like whether it's it's good to live this life where you're getting paid more and you're going to be comfy and there's people going to be looking out for you, but you know that deep down inside what you're doing is, is actively hurting people and just really not good for your soul. Like it's clear that that's the way. And it's not like the father is trying to convince him to be like a holy religious man. He's basically convincing him to go against the system to like finally break the tie that these men are kind of imprisoned by and, and really break this, break this up and stop the mob from controlling these men. And, and it's so fascinating. And I didn't really pick on, pick up on how much it is that like good, a- good angel versus like the devil on your shoulder until my second viewing where you really see that, a lot of Terry's scenes are kind of ping-ponging back and forth from the father back into Johnny or to, to Eddie kind of trying to tell him the same thing that the father is, basically. Yeah, essentially. And I love that you brought up the religious aspect of it because you have this father character. You're sort of assuming he's just going to use Christianity as you know to spread love, to spread goodwill. But he he's pretty dark. He's a pretty dark character, and he doesn't use religion to justify his things. He's used, What he's using is being good and the aspects of religion that I think people, more people should focus on that it's not God's will it's your will to be good in front of God and in front of your community to 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 do good to 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 be as best as you can be and I th- and that is the angel talking in Terry's ear like you are able you are capable of of being a savior not a religious one but being a savior in a community and being someone who who can do more so this scene is great. Uh, Carl Malden is a great one of his. He has many monologues in this movie. He, fantastic. He, he has a really great performance in this church scene. And what then happens is exactly what he thought wouldn't happen. That is the gang going to attack them. And it's done in a really cool way. So basically you start hearing this like tapping going on from the outside of the windows. And it goes to a shot of all the gang members with bats tapping on the ground outside the windows. And all of a sudden you see shadows of, and the lighting design's great of everyone running outside. You see uh, Edie and her father trying to get out and Terry grabs Edie like, Hey, follow me. They get out. And there's actually this really great shot where they're running out and they're Edie's going downstairs. So she's going into the camera frame. So her face gets huge for a second, but then Terry pulls her back and the, and I don't know if they kept, if they had kept focus on her or if they zoomed kind of in and out a little bit, but the way that he pulls her back is like, you know, you go like in and out, like, whoa, whole, like kind of like jarring for a second. And it's a really cool shot. It's a really cool sequence. It's fast cuts, the fast pace. There's some really, you know, hyped up music. And uh, essentially what happens at the end is this guy, KO Dugan gets you know, attacked pretty brutally. And he agrees with Father Barry that he's going to confess and he's going to go against the mob and, and say, hey, this is what's going on down the shores. Yeah, which then eventually leads to another great scene with the father and uh, the unfortunate demise of K.O. as well, which I think we have to talk about that as well. I love the bit that K.O. is is asking about, uh, why isn't this you know, Irish whiskey? I forget what they're moving at the time when he says that, but he just wants them to finally get whiskey, like crates of whiskey. Right? Yeah. yeah, so in this scene, they're moving whiskey. Um, there's actually a really cool shot at the beginning of the scene with uh, looking down onto Brando. He's... He had there's like a blanket over all the boxes, so essentially it looks like Brando's standing in front of a black background, and he pulls the blanket off, and it reveals all these boxes. So just really cool, really cool, well designed shot. So you know, so Ko he like starts to sneak some whiskey. I don't know why he would think that that was a good idea to to do that, and then 
they, you know, the gang is like, drop it on him. You know, they signal to each other and they drop probably like a ton of, of bottles of whiskey onto him and crush him in dead. And actually, uh, Joey Doyle's father, who I don't think even has a first name. He's just Pa Doyle, I think, in the movie. He says he doesn't need a doctor. He needs a priest, which he says it's so like just like deadpan and just so like, yeah, you're right. He he's dead. <laughs> you know? He says it so fast. Like, yeah. No one even checks on him whether he's dead or not. He just I mean, knows. They just know immediately, which made me question, or is it cardboard boxes that they're moving? Are they like wooden boxes? Would a cardboard box filled with alcohol? I guess there's a lot of them, I, and I could see that kind of killing so you. All the glass and all the, the it, weight of like the liquid-filled bottles, maybe. Yeah, I think. was it wood? I, it's hard to tell it's just a, like is. by looking at the boxes. Yeah, but yeah. I'm like then thinking like, were there even cardboard boxes in the 50s? Like most of there it, had to have been. There probably had to have been. That's a lot of cardboard that it would have to be. I don't know. It like <laughs> it like put me down a rabbit hole of like, would that actually kill someone? Like. Yeah, I guess if they're really heavy and it's like that if many I boxes. A, if I dropped a ton of bricks or a ton of cardboard boxes on you, it's still a ton. I think, yeah, if it like hit your head specifically, it would just kill you probably pretty quickly. Yeah. It just made it's like a weird thing <laughs> where I, like it things. took me out of the movie, not in a bad way, but I was just like, I'm so curious. Like, uh, but what it's also the physics of this. <laughs> yeah. It's also a really cool scene, though, where they're kind of building up the tension and they make it seem like they definitely know that he's going to be the next rat and that he's already kind of like ratting on them and the way the they kind of signal to like dump it on top of him and the way it kind of like tips out and it's from the his point of view so the camera's like pointing up at the boxes as they fall and like you get a quick shot of his reaction right before they crush him just like really modern filmmaking of an incident like that which i just don't think we've really seen like some of the editing like this as well no. how quick paced it is for like scenes like this no we definitely haven't and it's enjoyable it's fun and one of the other things it's kind of this like other theme it's like the curse of joey's jacket so ko gets joey's jacket his like father gives it to him it's actually a funny moment a little bit earlier in the movie because ko then goes to another guy he's like hey i got a new i have a jacket for you <laughs> um he says something about like this one has uh, more holes in the pirates infield and the pirates at that time were like really bad i thought that was just a really good line but yeah so this curse of joey's jackets so now ko's dead and what happens is father barry comes to you know give like your last rights to uh to ko and he he gives this impassioned speech and it, it's pretty incredible so father barry says some people think the crucifixion only took place on calvary they better wise up Taking Joey Doyle's life to stop him from testifying is a crucifixion. And dropping a sling on K.O. Dugan because he was ready to spill his guts tomorrow, that's a crucifixion. And every time the mob puts the pressure on a good man, tries to stop him from doing his duty as a citizen, it's a crucifixion. And anybody who sits around and lets it happen, keeps silent about something he knows that happened, shares the guilt of it just as much as the Roman soldiers who pierced the flesh of our Lord to see if he was dead. Boys, this is my church. And if you don't think Christ is down here on the waterfront, you've got another guest coming. Great. <laughs> Just really awesome speech. He, he he's screaming it from the bottom of this uh, of this ship. I, they're in a ship that they're getting everything out of. And he's just screaming it. And he's screaming it to everyone looking down on him. So now it, it adds a little bit of that, like, that difference where, like, usually everyone's looking up into the church, you know, on where a stage, I guess you want to call it, uh, where a priest is talking, giving their sermon. Now they're all looking down onto him and it's if they're giving judgment, it's as if maybe they're looking down into the depths of hell because they're all damned people in certain ways. But also it's the, you can look at it as that this is a turning point for Terry because 
he's seeing this happen. He's looking at someone who's screaming from the bottom up saying, you can't do this. This is wrong to, to kill that everything you're doing and to sit by and stand there and do nothing is just as wrong as well. And I think this actually is a good transition into what this movie kind of is about. And it's Ilya Kazan's confliction with uh, ratting out friends of his in Hollywood. Yeah, in a way, it certainly made him feel better and, and, and making a film basically well, like a lot of directors do this, whether it's as noticeable or as easy to connect to a personal event like this. And I, I think you probably have a, a good description of what happened, but you know, I think it's necessary to have like your personal experience, your personal struggles. And that's what makes a film so unique. And that's probably what makes Terry feel such a real lived in character. Obviously Brando's amazing performance, but there's something about a director not only bringing a vision, but like bringing a heart and soul into every scene and, and trying to incorporate his own personality and vision. I mean, it's what makes an auteur an auteur, right? So yeah, it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's what makes him stand out. So what I'm referencing is that um, during the Red Scare, and we talked about it before about the House on American Committee, how there was a ton of Hollywood filmmakers, writers, actors, whatnot, who were all blacklisted from Hollywood. And Kazan was one of the people to testify. He was one of the people to rat on his friend. I mean, I don't want to say rat. I want to. I, there's a better way to phrase it because a delicate subject. But he he told on them. He he gave people's names of like this person was a communist, and he was hated for it. And this movie, some people look at it as his way of communicating his conflict of of how he is like Terry of how he. You can look at it as the bat. Maybe he's saying the bad people are the people condemning communists and the good people were the communists, the people that he ratted out. You know, I don't, there's many ways that you can look at it, but, but people point at this movie as his like letter to apologizing, letter to acknowledging what he did and his feelings about it. I, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but it, it's certainly interesting to look at it and, and have that context for the film because I think it adds more depth. It, it adds more of a heart and soul, like you were saying. It, it is what makes him a great auteur director because he puts himself in his own work. So the movie, there's tons of like other scenes, you know, we, you know, we went, we did the two major father Barry scenes. And I, you know, that's kind of like mostly what Carl Malden's performance is giving these great impassioned monologues. But I want to also talk a little bit more about Ava Marie Saint and Marlon Brando's performances and their interactions with each other, because what you get within this like conflict that Terry's dealing with is this love story that, it's she's also pushing him to do good and to be better without actually knowing that he was directly involved, which is is fun. It's it's interesting. It, you you're kind of like when's the when when's the hack gonna yeah, drop? Yeah, when's the ball gonna drop? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's you know something that a character doesn't right, and you know that Terry is also kind of conflicted because he's like, damn, he he can see him falling in love, but he also knows. You know, he killed her brother and there's that conflict and you as the viewer know that she doesn't know that someone's going to find out like what is the father's reaction going to be as well and how how are they going to handle it from there. And that adds like a an edge to every scene they have, right? I, I think probably the most dated and, and the, looking back at a part of this film and maybe like critiquing it the most would probably be their romance. I think it's a little bit uh, too rushed while they do have a great connection. I think it's, it's their chemistry and she has a great performance. Um, I just think that their, their romance is rushed a little bit too far. And, and when we get further into the movie, there's definitely 
some weird aspects to it. I think uh, their kind of final coming together as a couple is, is a little odd. But, yeah, I mean, she's so charming and she really sticks out because what we have is, like, big kind of really large men. They're, a lot of, they're dirty all the time, greasy hair. Like, they're, she just stands out because she's always dressed really nicely. She has, like, this pop of, of her blonde hair just kind of, like, makes her really jump off the screen. And, obviously, she's a beautiful star who, who gives, like, this delicate performance which just kind of goes so drastically against the rest of the men in this movie. Yeah. They're all so rough and... And, and just kind of nasty at times, telling, like, weird, dirty jokes. And she's just seems like this sweet, kind of polite girl that definitely doesn't belong here, right? And yeah. that's kind of how they connect in a way. Yeah, she definitely doesn't belong. But at the same time, it feels like that she is a product of the community that she was a part of. And the other, you know, I think her other biggest role was North by Northwest. And that, she's stunning. Absolutely stunning in that movie. And it's not to say she's not in this movie. She's gorgeous. But I think that they pl- she's a look a little bit more, you know, grounded a little bit more lowly with how she presents herself. And I think that's when there are moments where she lashes out, where she shows that she has a, a tough side, that she shows she does have fight in her and that she's not just a woe is me character. I think that it really helps t- with how she is presented because she, you know, because she is beautiful and gorgeous, but there's that edge to her that. It's really not. Maybe it's just being a Jersey girl, you know, type of thing. <laughs> um, uh, I'm dating one, so I know uh, that very well. <laughs> um, but regardless of that, <laughs> oh man, is she gonna kill us? <laughs> maybe no. she'll kill me. No, that's all out of love. Yeah, it's, it is that's all the, out of love. The Jersey spice, the Italian spice. Yeah. It's all out of love. I know, and and we get a lot of spice in this movie, and so yeah, so this movie, their love, a little. I guess you could say it's rushed to me sometimes when I I do think that the way people fell in love in earlier times was way easier. And back then it was like, you want to have a kid? I want to have a kid. You're 20. I'm 20. All right. Uh, well, well, it sounds right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's like a place and time thing. Yeah. I So I, I, to me, like to critique it that way is fair, but I think sometimes like with this one, I don't mind it as much as some other ones where I feel like at other times it's like, Oh, I see you from across the room. Oh my God, I love you. Let me smash my face next to Definitely. yours. Definitely, it's not as simplistic as that, and there's a lot more complexity there yeah. in this relationship for sure. Oh yeah, and and but my point is, is that what Edie becomes is again like another angel whispering to Terry's ear, "Hey, you can do better," and she pushes him without again without knowing who he truly is. And a really great scene is kind of is right after the the church scene. Um, Terry's walking Edie through the park. And she's intimidated. She's like, you helped me, but I want nothing to do with you right now type of thing. And what's a great moment in Brando's performance that a lot of people like to point to, which it was just a mistake that had happened, was Edie drops her glove. And instead of stopping the take that a lot of filmmakers would have done or actors would have done, like, hey, like, Avery Marie Saints, you know, glove just dropped, Brando picks it up. And Brando doesn't give it back to her it's as if like he's toying with her that his that terry would playfully toy with edie because she dropped the glove and because he's just like one of those guys he's just like trying to have some fun because not because he's trying to flirt but because he's just like hey i'm i'm terry malloy this is you know i live in hoboken you know this is my town like i'm a good you know i'm a good town boy and then he, he what he does and and this you can look at it many different ways and he puts the glove on and to me this kind of signifies hey i'm have a softer side to myself but for others looking at me 
they might think I'm a little sadistic. I'm a little out there. I think, uh, you know, I think of a lot of like characters and movies who would do something like this, like be a little playful, but also like, holy fuck, you're a little, you're like crazy and you're about to kill someone. But Terry and how Brando presents it, I think is a little softer. And I think is a jumping off point for a lot of actors from here on out for how they interact, for how they have like the innocent girl in front of them and how they use that as they're kind of playing and toying with them in, the, in a scene. Yeah, I really love that moment. I think it really helps the scene a lot. It, it adds to, to the soft side that he has that you mentioned, right? That he's putting on this like soft, white, delicate glove. That that certainly is, and it's almost a sexual romantic gesture as well, as well right? Where it's almost like he's imagining what it would be like to hold her hand in this situation right now, or like if their hands would fit properly in each other's hand. Like it's something that you could kind of take in so many different directions, but it adds so much depth to his character and to their relationship in a way that you couldn't really get from like a line of dialogue it's one of those like magic moments of filmmaking where something just happens and it just improves their relationship and improves the film overall yeah it's really good it's one of the small details that adds to it so their relationship continues to grow you know day by day type of thing and one of the things that happens and we haven't actually touched on this is terry has a pigeon coop and it seems like a lot of people in that community had pigeon coops on top of their apartments and he so joey had one and he takes care of it it's actually labeled as joey's coop i love the design i love the rooftops and i know it's like kind of well that's what's there but it's the way they used it to interact and tell the story that i think is just really top notch so they have these pigeon coops and Edie comes up there to look at joey's and terry's like oh i've been taking care of it and i don't think it's like Hey, look at me. I've been taking care of your brother's coop. Want to go on a date with me? It's that good natured side of him that's like, yeah, Joey's thing is up here. Someone has to watch these birds. So I might as well do it. I, lo- I already take care of all the pigeons up here, anyways. Yeah, he seems to love these birds and love the animals. And I think that seems to be one of the biggest things that people shout out for this film in terms of, you know, some of the subtext of just not directly saying this, but comparing. Uh, the members and the workers, you know, the lower class of the film as the pigeons, as the kind of disposable, while people look at the mobsters as as hawks. I think there's multiple mentions of hawks and, and how some people are like called pigeons, in fact, in the movie as like an insult. And I think all of that kind of adds to not only Brando or Terry's being trapped when he's in, they're always shooting it from inside of the pigeon coop where you're seeing kind of the metal encasing around him or around EDS he's talking to her and that you know directly hints at and directly shows like the way he's feeling that he's trapped in this scenario that he is a pigeon and he needs to like kind of break free and fly out of this and I think that's definitely one of the most common uh, subtextual things that are in this film that people always point out and I really love that it shows his soft side as an actor and soft side as a character and and that really kind of like leads to Edie's connection more as well I think that kind of representation of the way he cares for these birds is also probably reminds her in a way of her brother in a non-creepy way but in a way that he's both an ex-fighter a tough guy who's helping mob members and and she kind of knows that and she sees the dark side of him but she also like sees this side where he's kindly talking to pigeons and petting their backs and I wanted to read this this quote from Kazan because I think it really described Brando really well and the way Kazan felt about him looking pack backpack looking back on his career and Kazan said what was extraordinary about his performance I feel is the contrast of the tough guy front and the extreme delicacy and gentle cast of his behavior what other actor when his brother draws a pistol to force him to do something shameful 
would put his hand on the gun and push it away with the gentleness of a caress. Who else could read, Oh, Charlie, in a tone of reproach that is so loving and melancholy and suggests the terrific depth of pain? So we're, we're kind of hinting to a scene that we'll definitely talk about in just a minute here, but I thought this really shows just like this this soft side that he has that is kind of clearly shown, yet he's got the rugged exterior, you know, always kind of bundled up and kind of hidden with his clothes, the, the cut eyebrow that he has that immediately kind of makes him stand offish. Especially for the time, I mean, I don't, I didn't even know this was even a thing uh, at this early on. I thought this was more of a recent like '90s trend that happened, or like a pop like '80s thing that happened. <laughs> but what, what do you think of? I just, it's such a weird thing to kind of stop and talk about. But what did you think of his character design of costuming and and the cut in his eyebrow like that? Oh man, I have a lot to say about the costuming. <laughs> actually, I love, I love the the cut on his eyebrow. I, I think I've read somewhere they actually stuck some like plastic tubes in his nose. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. make it look like he was a fighter and he has some of that scar tissue built up it just adds to it It adds to hey this guy he had some kind of past that we're not going to visually show but we're going to show the results of it and we're going to show the outcome of what it did to his body it seemed like they put some a little prosthetics on his like eyebrows to make him look a little swollen again that scar tissue there that he's had some black eyes so i love that makeup i love the costuming i love the he wears mostly a, a flannel i'm assuming it's a red flannel uh, in my head, it's a red flannel anyways. It's black and white film, so you can't really tell. But it's a pop collar. And then my favorite aspect of it um, is the hook, is the longshoreman's hook that that he has. And one, he really doesn't use it, or at least we don't really see him use it, because in the movie, Johnny Friendly gives Terry a really good spot, and essentially Terry doesn't have to do any work. And they kind of that's one of those scenes where... You know, they're like, you got to apply yourself. Charlie comes into the, you know, to the dock to kind of tell Terry, hey, like, why don't you actually do some work like once in a while? But he wears he has this hook in the, and I've seen other people do it. But again, this is Brando and the way Brando does. It seems like, well, that's great. So he <laughs> he puts it. So it, the hook is resting on his back, like left shoulder and the handle kind of comes across the front over his heart. And to me, that says a few things. One, it's as if Terry's always like ready to not just fight but he's also ready to be hooked to the side that he's ready to be caught that he's also on the hook whether he's on the hook for johnny friendly whether he's on the hook with father barry is he's a he's bait to you know lure out the bigger fish like we were talking about it it's you know it's it's just the way it's it's so like scary but also he feels so reassured about having that hook around his neck that it's really cool costuming a really cool piece uh, you know, prop piece that it's also the way his brother is hung at, at yes. the end, right? I didn't want, I, I wanted to, to say that, <laughs> but I wanted to wait a little bit, but yes, but Charlie is sort of hung by the hook. Um, so his costuming is great and, uh, it, it, it certainly adds to his character. And again, it's only one of those like things in a really great performance that you can really pick up on that. It feels like this adds to it. You have a feeling that the second Randall put on that jacket, he was like, Oh yeah, this is this is the Terry Malloy. <laughs> this is how it works, and this is how it feels. So I definitely love that. And um, just to kind of cap it off with the whole Edie love story, it, it's it's really good. But Ava Marie Saint also gave a really good quote about Brando that I think applies to what you were saying and, and has some really good bird references. So Ava Marie Saint says, "I did refer to him Brando once as a hummingbird because you just felt his sensitivity, his sensitivity to life." I guess, and certainly to the other actor and to the, and to the material and to the moment at hand. A hummingbird you're in awe of, 
and you can't really catch it, but every time I see one, I wish I could get even closer. And so Brando in that sense is humming with all that sensitivity. In the beginning, it put me off a bit. It felt like he understood me more than I understood myself, knew more than me than I felt I knew myself. And after a while, I just relaxed and I'd come from the actor's studio. We all had. So I just relaxed and used that. I've never been intimidated by other actors because I'm an actor. I'm not in awe, but I certainly have respect for other wonderful actors. People ask me, weren't you nervous opposite Marlon Brando? But no, I was at the studio and he was a member and a fine, fine actor. So for her to say that like, that he has a sensitivity that he's so in tune with not only his character, but everybody else's character has to lift everyone else's performance up because if he's able to kind of, you know, in a way like not, if, if he talked to them about their performances, maybe that did happen. Or maybe Brando had that respect of you do your craft. I'll do my craft type of thing. And it really adds to it. That's a, it's a really great thing to real recognize that because someone else is doing so good, I can do better. It's, I, you know, give a sports analogy. We have a really great quarterback on a football team. The rest of your team is going to be pretty fucking good. That offense is going to be clicking and moving in ways that you probably wouldn't have before with someone who isn't as talented, that isn't as in tuned with what's going on around them. And so it's Brando being that quarterback, being that star, being that person who can tell you where to be, when to be and how to be has to have lifted everyone else's performance. And honestly, that's how it feels this entire movie resulted in which is the entire cast being at the top i don't think there was really a bad performance in this entire movie do you, did you see that at all did you feel like there's performance that stuck out to you that was like eh, that's not my favorite no not at all i mean even john f hamilton as pop i don't even think we reference in the cast and side note i always find it fascinating when the character in imdb doesn't even have a or an actor doesn't even have a photo it's like how depressing is that? Like, there's so many films that these there's actors a lot are. To say yeah, about yeah. There's a lot about that, and that's a huge can of worms that I won't open too much. But yeah, I, I, even as the character Pop, who who's this like kind-hearted man, who even when the father's being like yelled at, and and uh, when he's inside the ship after the death of of uh, one of the workers, he's kind of trying to defend the father. And he, you even get like the small character who has just like a whole life outside of this film, and I think that goes to show how great the directing is, but also how even these small little performances are. And, and we haven't really talked about, uh, Rod's is Steiger Steiger. Steiger. Yeah. Uh, who plays Charlie, which is Terry's brother, who is not too heavily involved in the film, but he's in one of the most iconic and, and I think memorable scenes that people always talk about, which is the, the taxi cab scene, right? Yeah. Let, let's just talk about the taxi cab scene. We've been kind of pushing it off a little bit. I think we wanted to wait towards the end of talking about the movie because, um, and, and actually, I watched a clip of Rod Steiger talking about this scene, and he's even like, well, everyone thinks this is the best scene. And he kind of has like a, oh, my God, I have to talk about this again, because maybe he didn't think it was that great of a scene. Maybe to him it was like, this is my job. This is my work. This this It's hard maybe to be a part of something that so many people love and then to recognize in the moment wow that was cinema that was that was <laughs> well, great i try to think of it from his point of view and it's like he made this movie in a month basically it was freezing it was awful in terms of like the weather you know you, your most memorable days is probably being outside trying to stay warm like doing these elaborate scenes with all these actors amazing blocking this cool visual setting all the props and all the equipment that you've done to build up and make this feel like a real living world and then for people to be like yeah the scene where 
they were just like in a small little cab where the actors didn't even have to move where you probably just you know gave them kind of some notes here and there it probably required not a lot of work from Kazan's point of view for that scene in particular and I think maybe like looking at that and be like you know how much like time it it took to like put in all the blocking to to use all these extras and like (laughs) those are such amazing scenes and now all people want to talk about is this like this like five minute scene in a taxi cab like and it's not to go against the scene it's an amazing scene and there's a reason why it is so great but I think it's amazing because of the performances in the script so i think as a director you probably look at it as like what the fuck like i did so much more yeah to make this movie so i, I kind of see maybe that's why he feels that way yeah definitely and l- so let's uh so let's kind of from a big picture look at it let's look at this scene so what happens is terry gets in this cab with charlie and it's kind of at this point in the movie where the the gang is like Terry needs to kind of get in our side or he's kind of out type of thing. So Charlie being the the big brother is like, okay, I got to like step in. I got to talk to him. I got to convince him to essentially just be a part of this thing full time and to finally start having ambition to start making something of his life. And he, and it's just separate because he like knows that he's been with Edie, but he doesn't realize like how much in love he is and how much he's really divulging to her. So, so so that's that. So that's the big picture of like what's happening as they enter this cab. The other thing with this cab that I find really cool, and this is a technical behind the scenes thing, they didn't have a rear projector. So usually when you're watching a lot of old movies and people are in car, and even today when people are in cars driving, there's probably a projector behind them showing it to make it look like that it's real life. So Kazan at the time, um, and, and Steger said this in this clip that I watched. He said that Kazan was like, well, I can't do this. I need to figure out some other way. And someone mentioned that they had been in a cab with Venetian blinds. <laughs> so they they fix and put Venetian blinds in the cab so that they can, uh, you know, essentially you won't see from the back. It becomes a more intimate setting. You have cool like lighting designs, you know, happening on the outside, like different flashes going off to make it seem like headlights are passing by them. And what Steger brought up and, and, and what I didn't realize and what I love about it especially because it's in the widescreen format is because they had to film it in the cab because they couldn't show the outside. They had to get really close to the actors. And so then when the widescreen aspect of that comes into play, it then it, it makes this moment that you could have seen what was going on fully, but it expands upon it. It makes it bigger. It really makes it cinematic. And, and, and I love that. Seeing it in four by three, then seeing it in widescreen, I was like the widescreen format for this particular particular scene is what I love so much about it because you can't get out of it. You're in this cab with these two brothers who they're not. No one's mad at each other. I think they're coming from a place of love and respect. But it's two brothers who are finally, I think, being open with each other, and it's so intimate and so close that how can you not appreciate that? How can you not appreciate how it's being presented to you? Yeah, and it's basically two brothers finally coming together and they're like, yeah, enough of the bullshit. Like, we have to, like, be straight with each other. And it's Charlie being like, I'm literally going to die if you don't do this. Like, you need to do this. And I will literally even threaten you with a gun, threaten your own life so that you do this because I'm trying to not only protect you, but also protect myself. And it seems more so, and I don't know if this is just me reading into it, that the performance is played as Charlie cares a little more about himself he obviously still loves his brother but he's doing this more so for himself than he is for his brother even though him passing the gun 
to Terry being like, you'll need this, you'll need to defend this, defend, to defend yourself. But at the same time, it's also giving up his weapon, which may have saved him in that moment later on in the film. So it's interesting you talked about the aspect ratio in the scene because I felt that when I watched this originally, it was kind of like disorienting how close they were and how the close-ups for this scene were like so close that you were even like losing their chin at moments and it was like disorienting in a way for how close it was just because the rest of the film, I don't think we got close-ups that were like that that drastic but then looking at it from four by three and and what a lot of people have seen this movie in the one three three one aspect ratio it is a little weird it's a little like clunky because it's just this square aspect ratio and it's just like two men sitting in a car and and because you see like the entire car it's just a little odd in terms of the framing and then when it came to the 1661, which I saw it originally, it just felt perfect. It was like you have just enough headroom so that they're not getting cut off, but yet it felt closer and more intense and more personal. So it's funny. We had like kind of the the opposite reaction, but also came to like the same conclusion <laughs> in the way. Yeah, we, we were approaching it the same way. And, and it's just, again, it's just the way that the scene and, and, and the tone and, and the themes of this movie are really enhanced. And I think we can agree the four by three is not how this movie should be seen, but a one six six or one eight five viewing of it, I think is perfect. Yeah, because because you have it's cinematic, but it shows en- enough in the one six six, but in the one eight five, it's really in your face and really cinematic. So let's go back to the gun for a second because this gun portion of the scene holds a lot of significance for a lot of people, and there's a lot of different theories and stories of how this gun was approached in the scene. Um, so again, essentially what happens is Charlie pulls the gun out and is like, you're going to take this job, Terry and pulls it on him. And in the, so as you can imagine reading the script, what you're seeing is Terry's older brother is pointing a gun at me and all I, and in the script, it just says, Oh, Charlie. And what you said before about Kazan being like someone who would see, Oh, Charlie would be like, Oh, Charlie, or like screaming like, Oh, Charlie, why are you doing that? But the way that Brando subtly approaches it is like, so he's telling his brother that he's that his brother is misguided. Terry's saying, oh, Charlie, like he's so disappointed and he's so like, no, you don't get it. And and so like, that's great. But but what people in these rumors are all about is Brando pushes away the gun. And so a lot of people seem to take credit from it. There's a friend of Brando who says he did it. There's a brand. There's people are saying Brando did it himself. There's, you know, I've seen. I read stories about a, a grip told him to do it, that it could have been a, a collaborative effort. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of mixed things in there. But what it to me, what probably happened and how it seems is that Brando, either someone told him or he came to that approach of, I'm going to push the gun away. And Kazan liked it. And Kazan was like, we're going to keep doing that. And it seemed that, and Steger even said that he didn't like to know what other actors were going to do before he did, before uh, they did the scene. So for him to see that, like, Terry just pushes the gun to the side really signifies Brando going full circle with this character's emotions and coming back to, I'm just going to be subtle about this. I'm just going to be lamenting and being like, Charlie, like, like, no, that's not what's going on here. Yeah. And in a way it's almost like he's looked at his brother. He knows his brother is, is a part of the mob and he knows that he's involved with kind of their dirty and corrupt business, but he's always thought like he's my brother He'll always have me 
before them. You know, he'll always take care of me. He'll always be looking out for me, even if it goes, you know, even if it's before the mob, even if it's, you know, family first over even the bot family that he has with the mob. And I think it's that that revelation where he's just like, damn, like, I can't believe you two. Like, you, you've become fully corrupted. Like, you are now one of them. And, and it's just, like, breaks his heart, basically. And see, he's not even, like, worried about his own life because I think this character, like, doesn't really care about his life throughout no. this whole movie. He's he's not suicidal. He's just kind of, like, wandering through life, not knowing what his purpose is at all. Yeah. I mean, Edie says to him that he, he has no sympathy, he has no emotions, and she's amazed by it because someone can live like that. So it basically what happens then is the most recognizable aspect of the scene that everyone loves. And I'm going to say the, the quotes and the lines from it, and it doesn't even do it justice. Honestly, editing Ben, if you're just going to roll that whole scene, just go right ahead and do it. <laughs> oh, Charlie. How much you weigh, Slim? And you weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden? You came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night? I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. I guess I'm getting shivers right now just like <laughs> reading that and just imagining it because it's so powerful because in this moment so much of what Terry has been feeling and and what's conflicted him it finally comes out he finally reveals that I took you know I took my career and put it on the line and I wasted it for this fucking gang for the mob to make some money I wasted my opportunity to be somebody, to be a contender. And constantly throughout the movie, he's referred to as a bum. He calls other people's bums. There's a there's a homeless guy who he who calls Terry a bum. And Terry's like, this guy calling me a bum. And this is the moment where Terry's like, I am a bum. I could have been somebody, but now I'm a bum. And it's so iconic. It's so great. And and like this is this is the Oscar clip that they would play. You know, at, at the ceremony, if they were going to do that, um, although I choose a different scene, I'll talk about that in a second. But just it's really great. And then Charlie's defeated because he realizes I fucked over my brother. 
I I took my brother's chance at stardom, at getting out of here, of doing something, and I ruined it. And I think that's what ultimately ultimately he then gives the gun to Terry and is like, I'm done. Here you go. He knows he's right. Yeah. He knows that like this is this is he's right. You're this is the reason why you're in this situation. Like he knows that he's stuck because he's also stuck and he's probably even more stuck than Terry is. He's so embedded in the mob that this is like his last straw with them. If he can't, you know, straighten out his brother, then he's going to be thrown to the fishes, as they say. So it's it's so complex. And I think what stands out for this is is Kazan's directing or, you know, probably a mixture of him and Brand, Brando kind of working the scene out is this scene could have been just a yelling, screaming match. And it could have been so loud and, and aggressive and they could have been screaming at each other and it could have been so dramatic but the fact that it's almost it's kept quiet where they're like having this intimate conversation and Brando is definitely elevating. He's getting like frustrated and he's raising his voice, but he's not screaming. He's not yelling. He's like basically pouring his heart out to his brother in a way that they're still trying to, to kind of have this conversation in private, but still also be like internally revealing to to his struggles. Like you said, that is exactly what he's kind of been struggling through this entire time. And it just takes this scene to kind of finally like let it out and, and finally listen to the people, the father and Edie who've been there supporting him and finally not listen to Johnny who's been kind of like earworming his way into his soul and kind of like manipulating everything he's done to him. So it really is. Yeah, it's the turning point into the third act. And I really think it's just it's just beautiful. I think it's just a beautiful characterization from a screenwriting point of view. And and it's just exactly what you need from these characters. And it's so satisfying. And it's it's one of those scenes that everyone talks about. And when I first watched this film, it was just like, that's a good scene. But, like, why do people talk about this? Why do people quote this so much? And I think it was because of how jarring the film kind of jumps into the story. And I didn't really get a good understanding of who these characters were because I felt like I was playing catch-up the first time I watched it. And, like, with a lot of these older films, the second viewing, I was just like, okay, I kind of know where these characters are going. Now let me, like, fully watch how they're interacting with each other. And it was that second viewing where I was just like holy shit like this is perfectly set up and even like you said from a minor dialogue that he has with a homeless person like that use of vernacular and bringing that back into this finale and kind of revealing that him he in fact is calling himself a bum is such like a simple line that carries so much significance because of the way he's acted throughout the film, the way he's used that word like you said throughout the film so it's just phenomenal writing I I love this scene I, I love it Everything about the scene is amazing. And I just, I was going to say ditto because it is phenomenal <laughs> writing. It is great. And yeah, so Terry, it, this is the turning point. And you kind of, maybe you could say the turning point is a few scenes before where, and we didn't talk about this, but we can just mention this quickly is he, he talks to father Barry. He's like, Hey, like I'm, I'm feeling the conflict. What, what should I do? Father, tell me what's going on. And father Barry essentially tells them that what you know about having Joey Doyle, you have to tell Edie about this. So he tells Edie, and he sort of loses her because he tells her that, like, hey, I knew it was happening. But they do this, like, subtle technical bit. And this is the one technical bit I'm going to harp on that I did not love about the movie is that in the scene where he tells Edie, hey, like, I essentially helped kill your brother, there's just a lot of sound. There's just, like, horns and, like, like boat horns, like, going off, oh, like, clinging wow. and clanking going on. That's happening all over the dialogue. So I guess they were trying to mask exactly what Terry was saying, that, you know, Terry's saying like the absolute truth. And so they're trying to hide that. They do it another time, but it's a little done a little <laughs> differently. Um, and we'll get to that. 
And so to me, like that was like the one technical aspect that I didn't love about this movie is like that scene. I'm like, I kind of wish that it was him telling her that it, that maybe that could have been the screaming match emotion. But I kind of then like how the screaming match or the like letting everything out emotions and scene is this taxi cab scene. So it's it's brilliantly done. That's, that's sorry to cut you off. That's funny that you hated that scene because I actually <laughs> loved that that moment. And Ugh. I don't really understand the significance of using it in that moment in time. Like it's funny just because I've used that same exact kind of it's not the same scenario, but it's a similar setup where exterior noises is, is blocking like the interior dialogue the characters are having. So it's funny that you said that because I've actually <laughs> done that in a short film before and I had no idea. I've never seen this movie, so I had no yeah. idea how like it's exactly similar to the way I was doing it. It's, it's, yeah. It's a, well, it's just for me in like that moment, like if it was a different moment, like maybe towards the beginning of the movie where people are talking to each other, like I would have been fine with that, but it was the way that that particular scene, I was like ready. I was like sitting on my edge and like, okay, he's going to tell Edie now he's going to tell Edie. Yeah, you want to know what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. You want to know. So we backtracked a little bit, but just wanted to throw that in there. So the scene ends and, and it's so Terry, I, I, he has the gun, but I think he's still like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do yet. And to him, what he does, he runs to Edie. And what happens to Charlie is after he drops him off, Charlie, it's then, it's then revealed the driver was one of the gang members. And, you know, as the audience, well, Charlie is probably done for. So this uh, this is probably a very problematic moment. And well, it is a problematic moment. I shouldn't say probably it just is. <laughs> So uh, Edie's in her apartment and uh, Terry just breaks the door down and storms right in and, and forces himself upon her and, and kisses her. And I so there's some lines that she says. It, it's like, you know, it's not that she basically says it's not that I don't love you. It's that I want you just to stay away from me because either you're not, you know, because you did help with my brother's death. Like, how can I be in love with someone who did that? But she is starting to but she breaks that down and when he kisses her it is like forcing himself upon her she does you know kiss him back and then she's like i do love you i do want to be with you type of thing and that's a little like don't love that and i think that it's also then hard to criticize the entire movie off of that moment but i definitely want to point it out and and talk about it because it it that would never happen today and and no guy or woman should be forcing themselves onto anyone else yeah, and it's that's one of the issues I've had with the overall film that I kind of mentioned in the beginning with their romance is that it kind of it concludes here really like that's kind of like the end of their one-on-one scenes for the most part, and I just don't think it closes in the satisfying way that we deserve with these two characters. It's it's not as I don't know. It's just it's cutting it's short. It feels like it feels like it's not earned for them to kind of come to this conclusion. It's not nearly as bad as like, say gone with the wind with the, uh, whole, uh, the rape scene. Yeah. We'll just call it what it is. Fall on rape scene, but it's definitely has weird, creepy vibes. And you like, you see that she kind of like succumbs to his love, but the fact that that he's even something that they have to do is a little odd. But again, I think it's very much of the time where they just felt like the need to show like a man, like, doing literally whatever he, he possibly can breaking down doors and yeah doing whatever and, and maybe for a lot of people at the time it, that was like a romantic thing like nothing can stop me even though when you look at it from our point of view now it's very much of like no means no you know yeah. it's like very much what we're taught from day one like 
as men especially like no means no and if you have to listen to the woman doesn't matter if you think that she's just lying to you or if you think that she just needs to have a kiss and then she'll be you know it's hard to ignore those weird details of it but I, I try to look at it as what what it would be like for women or men seeing this back in the day so yeah it's it, definitely of the time yeah it's definitely of the time so but what happens next is it this is like again when the movie like the last like half hour of it is like you're on the edge of your seat and you're and you're waiting for the every you know domino to fall so someone starts calling out for terry hey terry like come on down like come out here and it's very similar to how joey was killed and there's actually an, an, a side character, a woman, a neighbor. She's like, that's how my Andy was called before he was killed. And she says that twice when Joey dies. And then this moment when Terry comes down. So Terry comes down into the alleyway and he's like, well, what's going on? And Edie runs after him. And then what you see is this truck coming at them. And so it's this like action sequence where Terry and Edie are like running away from this truck that's coming after them. It's these really good, like quick cuts where Terry punches a a doorway, like a glass in a door to get through. And so you see this really cool shot of his hand going right through the glass. They escape, they get in and the truck misses them. But what you see the truck pass is the hanging body of Charlie. So the gang kills Charlie. He's hanging by the hook of the longshoremen. Um, it looks like he was shot or he could have been stabbed. It looked like they were like, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Look, there were like four holes in the, in the front of his jacket. Maybe so the hook itself, I don't know. Could have been the hook itself. So Charlie's dead. Terry's like, well, that kind of just does it, and I'm going to really tell on uh, on what happened. So they, so the whole court scene then happens pretty much next. Terry is, or no, 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 let me backtrack. I totally skipped a, a very key scene. Is then Terry uh, takes the gun that Charlie had that, he, that Charlie gave him, and he's going to go after Johnny Friendly, and he runs into a bar, and then this is the scene I, I was saying before, like maybe this should be the Oscar scene. And the Oscar clip is when Terry is, you know, just like really at the end of his wits of like, I'm going to do this. He's holding up the bar. And yeah, everyone's like kind of like on the edge of like, who's he going to shoot? He's clearly there for Johnny Friendly. And Father Barry comes in and Father Barry just tackles him and just shoves him to the side. And this line, the way that Brando presents it, he's he tells Barry, it's none of your business about like what's going on. And he says it in such an emotional driven way that you, you just feel so sorry for Terry. You feel so sad. You can really tell that he is, he's really feeling it. He felt like he finally opened up. He finally got Edie back, but now his brother, his only family is gone. It's dead. And father Barry then asks the bartender for a beer and, and he gives Terry a beer and Terry takes a really, he takes a long swing of it with his bloody hand. Cause it was bloody from him punching the glass so it's just a really cool, like well-established shot, really well-crafted. And then he tosses the gun at a photo of Johnny Friendly hanging in the bar. And that's when it transitions to the trial scene where everyone, you know, Johnny Friendly there, the whole gang is there. You know, people were bringing, you know, everyone in they could to try and see what's happening. And Terry, uh, they, he comes in and he confesses. But what he does is he just nods along and says right to the lawyer's question and then when you finally are like, okay, you're going to get a real answer out of Terry, it cuts to some unnamed, unfaced figure. Maybe it's someone, an, a political figure. Maybe it's some higher up businessman watching this trial happen on TV, which I didn't know trials are on TV back then. So I was like a little shocked um, about that. And right before Terry's about to testify, 
he turns off the TV and we don't actually see exactly what Terry says. So kind of another moment where we don't hear the dialogue or don't see it. And um, I, I kind of liked how they did it that way, that it just gets cut off and it's like, all right, you don't see what Terry says. You know that people are pissed off above Johnny Friendly. And then it cuts back to the court scene um, and the lawyers you know, saying thank you to Terry. And then Johnny Friendly like openly like admits and attacks you know Terry and it's like why are you arrested there? <laughs> he should be arrested immediately. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk about that figure and and to me it seems like it's Johnny's superior. It's like the head of the mob, like the, yeah. the head of maybe the New York mob and Johnny's the head of like the Docks or Jersey mob maybe. And it's super interesting cuz it's it one that feels so so modern to not only like rely on your audience to to have that understanding of taking you completely out of this scene, showing you a completely new character, a character you don't even know who they are, you've never been introduced to them, and just make you think what the context of this scene is. Like, this blew my mind. In fact, I didn't even realize this was happening the first time I watched it. It just kind of went over my head, to be honest. And it was the second time I watched it, I was like, wait, what the hell was that? Like, <laughs> what, what, what are they even showing that for? And it wasn't like they're constantly cutting to these people throughout the, the movie. This is like a one-time thing. But it hits on the fact that there's someone always above you. Like, even if you beat Johnny, there's someone to replace Johnny. or There's someone who's kind of Johnny is even reporting to. There's always someone above you, someone below you. And that perfectly represents this film. And we don't really need to see Terry doing it. You know, like the real conclusion of Terry's story comes directly after this. You know, confessing is not just the end to killing the way this kind of union is poorly run, but it's it's much more than that. And I think that's where our film kind of continues forward and we get the sad death of all the pigeons. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. That, that, that <laughs> I want to hit on that scene because yeah. Tom, so Tommy is this little boy that Terry has been like, that is who's been helping Terry with the pigeons. Tommy kills all the pigeons and tosses a pigeon at Terry and goes and crying. And he goes a pigeon for a pigeon. And it's, Terry is not like crying and showing hourly how upset he is, but he's pretty distraught that all the pigeons are dead. This is an, this is the moment you talked about a little earlier uh, in the episode about the boat in the background being cut off by the wide uh, screen aspect. Um, he's so Terry kind of sees this boat going, you know, going off on the shore, going out to sea. And it seems like then is like, that's the moment where he's like, I'm going to go back to the docks and I'm going to really fight this. I'm going to fight this on the ground. Yes. And I want to stop there and talk about that big boat because when we watch the widescreen version, it's you can kind of see it in the background of some shots, but it's very much cut off in the majority of these shots. One, three, three, you really get to see it. It's huge because it's such a wide frame that you see so much more in the movie. But this boat is in the movie throughout from the very beginning it's kind of docked there. And there's a couple scenes where Terry's just looking at it. No one, I don't think there's a single line even talking about the boat. Maybe there is that I missed it. But there's very little talk about this. It's a huge boat. It almost looks like what you would imagine like the Titanic looks like, the big smokestacks. Really, really large boat. And it's really noticeable because everything else around here doesn't look like it should have this level of class. Like it's this really big, huge boat that just doesn't fit in this like dirty, disgusting dock. And when I, we do research for this movies, you know, we try to like look, find some subtext, find you know, history and background information about the characters, actors and so forth. And I couldn't find any mention about this boat. 
And I'm like, this boat is, is definitely very significant to this film while no one mentions it. There are so many shots just like of this boat and the scenery. And you could say, yes, like that's just to show the scenery, it's to show the setting. But there's an intention here when the pigeons are dead and Terry's looking out and he sees this boat is finally leaving. And it's this moment, which I think is the really underappreciated subtext in this movie, is that Terry is this boat. He is this huge, like looming figure that like clearly doesn't belong here. It shouldn't be here. It just doesn't fit right. But yet he just kind of stays here. He's just docked. He's just stuck here in this position, not really knowing where to go. He just thinks he's going to be stuck here forever. He's stuck on the waterfront. Exactly. And it's when that boat leaves is, is his kind of like click in his head you know so many people have been trying to tell him what to do and or or, but only you personally are going to be able to come to that decision and this is his final confrontation that he has with himself he sees the boat leaving and he like to me it signifies like there is a way out of here I don't have to be stuck here this whole time or there's something more to me to me than just kind of being stuck here on the waterfront I'm, I'm bigger than this and and there's something beyond this so I want to talk about that because I literally couldn't find anyone really talking about it or really mentioning it, but it feels like a really significant part of this film that is just so underappreciated. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, and, and, I, and I love that interpretation of it about it, about Terry being stuck, and, and this is his out. Like This is the moment where he's ready, and, he, and he's ready to do something with his life. He's ready to take on that ambition and to, to join the community at large, to be a good person. It definitely seems like the boat is the big signal for that so really you know i love point you pointing that out and yeah there isn't really much about this boat so i i couldn't agree more so let's get to the ending of this movie we've we've talked a lot about it there's still so much that we haven't talked about that i would love to but hey join us in the conversation let us know what you think about this movie because i could talk about this movie for days as maybe john knows <laughs> so the ending is terry shows up to the dock and he's actually wearing joey's jacket so the curse of joey's jacket comes back he has the hook around his neck and he's waiting to be called, you know, to work for that day. Everybody gets called. Even the bum that calls Terry a bum in the movie gets a job for the day. But Terry doesn't get one. And it's Johnny Friendly proving a point because Johnny Friendly is still in charge. He's not in jail yet. He's saying that this is his docs and, he, and he's still in charge and he's going to decide who works, who doesn't work. And Terry has enough of it. And. What happens is Terry, essentially where Johnny Friendly's hideout is literally right next to the dock. And that's where, and he, so, so Terry starts to look for him and Johnny comes out and Terry gives this really, these great lines. He says, you think you're God almighty, but you know what you are. You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. And I'm glad what I done to you. You hear that? I'm glad what I done. So again, Terry's saying, I'm fine being the rat. I'm glad that I stepped out here and I said something because what it's going to do is bring you down. And maybe that's how Kazan felt. He's glad that he said something. He's glad that he told on his, you know, friends of his and colleagues that they were communists. And he's glad that he does it because maybe he feels at peace that he's done that. So however you want to look at it, that's definitely all there out there to be interpreted. But then Terry and Johnny just go at it. Johnny, you know, goads Terry to come and fight him, like really give it, and Terry attacks him. So Terry throws the first swing. Johnny then is an older guy, but he's really able to move quickly and get on top of him. And then they have this fist fight. It's a little clunky. It's not like, you know, this you know, technical fight that's going on. It's just two guys, you know, you know, going after each other. And um Terry seems to have the edge on Johnny, and then Johnny 
being the gang guy he is, the mob guy, he goes, I uh, basically tells everyone, everyone else in the mob to go beat up Terry and help him. So everyone beats the shit out of Terry. He's like on his last legs. And, um, it seems like either Terry is dead. He has his head like bashed open. It, it looks like in pretty bad shape. And I actually think I saw a behind the scene photo of Brando putting on this makeup himself. Yeah. Yeah. Still. I saw that. So that, that's really cool. Um, definitely going to have to try and find that again, just to have my phone as background. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and then so father so everyone, all the longshore men are watching this father Barry's there. Edie is somehow there. Johnny's like, you guys can have him now after they're all done being the shit out of him. And Father Barry and Edie and some other characters are go and find Brando where none of the crowd can kind of see him. He's sort of behind this like hideout building and he's in bad shape. And they kind of are like, are you going to go out there? And like, we need you to go out there and do this. All the men will rally behind you if you stand up and walk out there. And and Father Barry whispers into Terry's ear that like that Johnny's putting odds that he won't make it up. So he's trying to tap into that, you know, that athlete mindset of like someone's doubting you are you gonna go out there and prove yourself and terry um he <laughs> he has this great line he goes get me on my feet <laughs> and, and he can barely even say it and, and brando be, barely be able to say anything in the first place is kind of funny so he says get me on my feet father barry goes how are you doing and terry goes am i on my feet and they lift him up he essentially is like the champion walking he starts to walk towards uh towards the dock ready to work because people already are starting to yell at johnny friendly like hey we need people to work no one's working right now we got to get this shipment out pa pushes johnny friendly into the water and everyone's kind of laughing at him and then everyone sees terry walking up he they the way they shoot this is really cool because he's they're definitely trying to show that he's concussed that he's not like seeing straight and and he walks in triumphant he walks into the docks everyone says you know the guy is like let's go to work Everyone follows him, leaving Johnny friendly out in the cold. The garage door closes to the dock, and the movie ends. Yeah, one, there's so many things that, to hit on this because it's, it's such a dramatic scene. I mean, leading all the way up into this moment is, is so dramatic, but I wanted to, to shout out some of the great dialogue uh, when Terry kind of confronts Johnny right there on the docks. He Johnny kind of shouts back at him like, you ratted us, clearly showing that Terry is a rat and, and they all know. Uh, and Brando shouts back, I'm standing over here now. I was ratting on myself all those years. So I love that line of dialogue because it really shows that Brando, or Terry in this case, is he, he knows that he's been the biggest issue here. He's put this weight on his back, and, and he's been the one holding himself back. And as much as he tries to kind of like victim blame and say it was it was them, it was the mobsters, it was his brother. He knows deep down that he, he could have changed this and he could have stopped this a long time ago. So it's a beautiful line of dialogue. But I also want to note something about, again, boats. I know I'm bringing up a lot of boats. There's a funny little thing I noticed on, there's a tiny little kind of boat next to their, their dock where all the mobsters live. And it's kind of been there throughout the movie and it's just kind of a small four-person sized boat. But on the boat, I don't know if you saw this. It said New York Rebel on it. It says NY (laughs) Rebel. And I'm assuming that's the name of of the boat in itself and also kind of implies of who Terry is. He's this kind of rebel. He's not a New Yorker, but I think that kind of like summarizes this kind of area as well. And I thought that was a cute little nod. I'm assuming that's what it's kind of in reference to. And then, of course, yeah, you you described this ending scene really well and, and how kind of visually he's impaired. And the music, we haven't talked much about the music. The music is so intense in this moment and 
it's building up and building up and it sounds alien and 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 it's kind of like driving him to keep pushing forward just as he's just slowly marching along covered in blood and 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 just a mess truly a mess but everyone's looking at him like so proudly you know it's they're not looking at at him and looking down at him it's finally people are kind of seeing the person that he always thought he was like this this symbol of hope and this someone who's kind of going to push through and lead these people and, and be a bigger man and i mean come on there's i don't think there's a better ending shot that we've seen yet with the doors closing and then just the end popping yeah. up perfectly it, like perfectly it perfectly ends this movie because of how sudden the beginning was and the first time i watched this i was just like whoa it's over what the hell like we're not gonna have you know i'm so used to like some grandiose speech happening at the end and then like maybe the the movie can end right this it was just like wow they're letting this character like show his action and the action is what's ending this movie and then we're having another physical action almost like a sight gag with the doors closing on us the audience at showing being like Terry's got this from here and I love that I thought it was so beautiful it's such a great way to end the movie yeah I, I absolutely love it again like I can go on forever we've talked more for than the actual runtime of the movie which <laughs> again like we kind of have to praise like they fit all this in in an hour and 47 minutes yeah it's shocking like that's that's great and I'm not saying that like I hate long I love long movies I, I love long movies but this is it's it also signifies to me like when you can pack a story like this and and it's done so well it shows how great of the movie is that it, it's really well done it's well crafted it's just all over the place like a plus marks all over so all right let's jump right in this is the 27th academy awards thank you prez good evening ladies and gentlemen welcome to you bet your career <laughs> hollywood's biggest giveaway program and I want you to know that the secret word tonight is shucks. <laughs> I just want you to know this is the 27th Annual Academy Awards, the dramatic climax of a dynamic industry whose motto is Sic Tempest Ad Hoc Scurus. <laughs> Translated from the Latin means there's money in popcorn. <laughs> Perhaps you... Perhaps you people watching don't realize the air of tension in this theater tonight, but five rivals for each award are seated out there side by side. We're sitting on an ermine time bomb. <laughs> the, winner, the winners will, of course, take home an Oscar. The losers will all be presented with monogram do-it-yourself suicide kit. <laughs> And I have a word here for the losers. If it isn't whether you win or lose that counts, it's the way that you play the game. <laughs> I found that embroidered on Stuart Granger's cricket bat. <laughs> now, the Oscars, you know, are made up special each year. That is, that is the way it used to be, but they don't do that anymore. Now they just wait, and around the 1st of March, Walt Disney calls up the Academy and says, how many do you need? <laughs> But there are a couple of new awards this year. There's an award for the producer who showed courage above and beyond the call of duty by making a musical in regular screen black and white. And there's also a special award for bravery for the producer who made a picture without Grace Kelly. I thought that was very <laughs> And seriously, I'm honored that I'm chosen this year to emcee these awards. You know, hel helping hand out these Oscars 
give me sort of an inner glow. Well, it's more than a glow. I burn up. <laughs> now, two years ago, I received an honorary Oscar, but for a man of my determination and honesty, it was a hollow victory. It really meant nothing. As a matter of fact, I only keep the shrine open two afternoons a week. <laughs> but it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have movies booming again after the TV scare. I was a little worried last year when the Oscars came through in a kneeling position. <laughs> but of course, the movies are now booming again. Still, television isn't worried. And they'll only start to worry when the motion picture industry has enough money to sponsor this program. <laughs> the 27th Academy Awards were held on March 30th, 1955 at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood. And of course, we're carrying it over the tradition to New York where we have the other ceremony held in NBC Century Theater in New York City. And this year's award show was hosted by Bob Hope in Los Angeles and Thelma Ritter in New York City. That's your girl, Thelma Ritter. You love her. <laughs> All right. Academy Honorary Awards this year went to Vincent Winter for his outstanding juvenile performance in The Little Kidnappers and to Joey Whiteley for his outstanding performance in The Little Kidnappers. To Danny Kaye for his unique talents, his service to the Academy, the motion picture industry, and the American people. To Greta Garbo for her unforgettable screen performances. Kemp R. Niver for the development of the Renovar process, which has made possible the restoration of the Library of Congress paper film collection. And to Bausch and Lom Obstacle for their contributions to the advancement of the motion picture industry. Best foreign language film goes to Gate of Hell from Japan. Gate of Hell was the first Japanese color film to be, to be released outside of Japan. Best special effects went to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Best film editing goes to Gene Milford for On the Waterfront. This is the second and final career Oscar for Gene Milford, and he previously won for Frank Capra's Lost Horizon in 1937. Milford was one of the first recipients, along with Barbara McLean, for the American Cinema Editor's Career Achievement Award, Ben is On the Waterfront worthy of best film editing? Do you have to ask that? <laughs> yes, yes. yes. It definitely is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the only kind of moment you could look at that's a little clunky is maybe the end fight scene. But on the other hand, maybe it was edited to kind of be disorienting to kind of show Terry's point of view. Yeah. That's all I'll say. The rest is like honestly incredible. And so it felt so modern and fresh from what we've seen so far. Yeah. And what I just said, hour 47 length runtime, it quick cuts, it, it balances everything out. Great editing. Moving on to best costume design. This went to Gate of Hell to Sanzu Wada. This is Wada's only career win. Wada was Japanese and he was the first Asian to be nominated and win best costume design. Best costume design black and white goes to Edith Head for Sabrina. This is Edith's sixth win of eight total wins and out of 35 nominations. Best cinematography color went to Milton Krasner for Three Coins in the Fountain. Notably, also in this category is Rear Window, so that should have fucking won. Yeah, talk about yeah. amazing T color photography. And I'll, I'll definitely talk more about that oh, movie yeah. as we as I keep going. Best Cinematography, Black and White, goes to Boris Kaufman for On the Waterfront. This is Kaufman's only career win. On the Waterfront was his first American production, and he, he would go on to be nominated for Kazan's 1956 film, Baby Doll. Kaufman was also the cinematographer for 1957's Twelve Angry Men. 
So again, just another deserved win. I love the cinematography of this. It's not as in your face as maybe some other movies are of the cinematography, but this does such a great job. There's so many great shots, so many mm-hmm. great angles. Lighting design is fantastic. And then you add on the aspect ratio part of it. I mean, CinemaScope was starting to become a thing at this time, but the fact that they were like, no, we're not going to do CinemaScope. We're going to film this all in camera on the 4 by 3 format, but then also blow it up to 1851 is it's pretty incredible and, and Kaufman kicked ass in uh yeah in his cinematography for this yeah it's, it's so incredible I mean he packs so much in the frame it's beautiful I, I really love 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 the framing throughout this movie it's it's incredible and it's it really goes to show that you can shoot a film and and have it translate in these three different formats and to not have any huge issue or or some like continuity issue because of this like it really really shows how well they filmed this to have it translate over this kind of different variations and have it still stand up and have people still argue to this day which version is best it's it's incredible moving on to best art direction color this goes to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, art direction by John Meehan, set decoration by Emil Curry. Best art direction, black and white, goes to On the Waterfront, art direction and set direction by Richard Day. This is Richard Day's seventh and final career Oscar win. Day was nominated a total of 20 times in his career and notable one in 1941 for the Best Picture winner, How Green Was My Valley. And also later on winning in 1951 for A Streetcar Named Desired, another Kazan film. Yeah, so we talked about Day a few times in this movie. We lauded him for How Green Was My Valley and that whole set design. This one, again, kicks ass. It's, it's a great set. I mean, you're using really Hoboken and like the city that's there existing, but just uh, it, it's just all really well designed and layout. So what, whatever they added, whatever they were able to contextualize and, and put there out there on the buildings, I, really good. So um, definitely a good win. Best sound recording went to the Glenn Miller story to Leslie I. Carey. Best song goes to Three Coins in the Fountain. From Three Coins in the Fountain, music by Jewel Stein, lyrics by Sammy Kane. Three hearts in the fountain Each heart longing for its home There they lie in the fountain somewhere in the heart of Rome which one will the fountain bless which one will the fountain bless Kane and Stein were asked to write the song to fit the movie but were unable to either see the film or read the script. They completed the song in an hour and had produced the demonstration record with Frank Sinatra by the following day. The song was subsequently used in the film soundtrack, but in a rush, 20th Century Fox neglected to sign a contract with the composers, allowing them to claim complete rights over the royalties. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers to Adolf Deutsch and Saul Chaplin. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Dimitri Tiomkin for The High and The Mighty. Just wanted to highlight this quickly. Uh, On the Waterfront was nominated here to not win. Leonard Bernstein wrote the music for this. This is actually, uh, On the Waterfront is the only movie that he actually composed a score directly for the movie. Um, I know he did West Side Story, but he made the musical before that. So 
pretty significant. A guy like Leonard Bernstein, the only film soundtrack or score he made was on the waterfront. And it's so bold and it's in your so face good. and yep. colorful. It's It just feels so different than what we've been used to. Could not agree more. Moving on to best live action short subject to real goes to A Time Out of War to Dennis and Terry Sanders. Best live action short subject one reel goes to Robert Youngson for This Mechanical Age. Best documentary short subject goes to Thursday's Children. Best documentary feature goes to Walt Disney for The Vanishing Prairie. Best short subject cartoons goes to When Magoo Flew. Best story goes to Philip Jordan for Broken Lance. Broken Lance was shot in Technicolor and Cinemascope, and this film is a remake of House of Strangers from 1949, which was a Philip Jordan screenplay. It has been widely noted that this story bears a strong resemblance to King Lear. So something is a remake, and it bears a strong resemblance to another great work from Shakespeare. How is this an original idea to give a best story? I'll never understand this <laughs> goddamn category. We have it for a few more times, but this one just seems like, what? How does that work? It's a remake. Moving on to best story and screenplay goes to Bud Schulberg for On the Waterfront. Two months after this Academy Award presentation, Monticello Film Corporation demanded that the Academy take back Bud Schulberg's writing award. According to a Hollywood Reporter item, Monticello had filed suit in October of 1954 against Schulberg, Kazan, Spiegel, Horizon American Pictures, which is Spiegel's company, Columbia, and Malcolm Johnson, claiming that Schulberg was under their employ when he dramatized Johnson's series. The outcome of the suit has not been determined, but the award remained with Schulberg. Man, social politics is these crazy politics and it's it's pretty wild i mean at least in imdb you have that credit listed that we kind of read in the very beginning so we do have that acknowledgement of him i don't think his name's in the credits though right for um i don't think so yeah no i i don't think so i mean no Schulberg's in the credits it's just i maybe they gave him some money it was like fuck off it <laughs> seems like there's a lot of people that sued about this movie including frank sinatra so which is something we didn't even talk about. Well, but. we, I mean, like we could talk about it. It just Sinatra wanted to be in this movie. They kind of were like, yeah, you'll be in this movie. And then Brando was like, you know, I think I want to be in this movie now. And they were like, well, Brando's in. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much what happened. Best screenplay goes to The Country Girl. George Seaton based on the play by Clifford Odets. This is Seaton's only career win. And he served at the Ampass president for three terms starting in 1955 and he also directed the 28th academy awards held in 1956 so moving on to best supporting actress goes to ava marie saint for on the waterfront for her performance as edie doyle this is saint's first and only career win and nomination and upon the death of olivia de Havilland in 2020 saint became the oldest living and earliest surviving academy award winner and one of the last surviving stars from the golden age of hollywood cinema she actually appeared uh in the a few years ago i think it was the 92nd academy award back in 2018 she gave out a best costume design award still looks great she's in her late 90s she's a treasure honestly the academy should bring her back every year and be like this is history right here everyone like we should appreciate this because it's going to be gone at some point and uh, so which is going to be a sad moment, but now she's the oldest living Academy Award winner. So that's 
awesome and incredible. And one thing I noticed when I saw the clip of her winning was she wasn't wearing a dress. She was wearing like this like suit. It almost like pajamas. And then I found out she was pregnant uh, with her with her and her husband's first child. And he was actually born two days after she had won the Academy wow. Award. So she's pregnant, accepting the award, being a badass, oldest living Academy Award winner. Winner. Let's just fucking call her Ava Marie fucking Saint. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. I, I like to think that they took a picture with the newborn with the Oscar. Right oh, I hope so. Him. I hope so. <laughs> That's definitely somewhere out there. Best supporting actor goes to Edmund O'Brien for the Barefoot Contessa as Oscar Muldoon. This is O'Brien's only win out of two career nominations, and he would go on to be nominated for seven days in May in 1964. So, just notably in this, you have Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, and Rod Steger all nominated for their roles for On the Waterfront. None of them win. Maybe it's one of those Mutiny on the Bounty, All About Eve type of scenarios, even from for From Here to Eternity, where the vote just gets split and O'Brien wins. Um, so, out of those three, though, John, who would you pick? As I the, knew you were going to ask I, I, I got to ask. For me, I think it's pretty easy. I think it's Carl Malden for Father Barry. I think he has got the most to do in the story, so that immediately gives the the one up. Obviously, screen time does not define whether you're qualified for Best Supporting Actor. I could see you going for Lee J. Cobb because he's such like a – you really hate him, and that shows how good of his performance is. Rod Steiger, I just – there's just not enough of his kind of character screen presence. And he's probably there because of that taxi cab scene and the tragic death he has uh, in the film, but not enough. I got to go with Carl Malden. How about you? Yeah, I got to go Cobb. I love Malden. He won the Oscar a few years before. Cobb needs to get it. Cobb, you know who Cobb would have been great? He would have been great as um, as Willie Stark in, uh, in, in, all, in All the King's Men. I, he would have been perfect in that role. Yeah, definitely. Um, so to me, to me, it, it's Cobb. I mean, Malden gives a great performance, but I love Lee J. Cobb, the way he presents himself, the way Johnny Friendly it, it interacts with the world and his, and his gang. It's I said it's electric. It still is electric. I, I love it. So that would be my pick. Um, but moving on to Best Actress. This one went to Grace Kelly for The Country Girl as Georgie Elgin. This is Kelly's only career win. Uh, Kelly won the Academy Award for Best Actress for this role, which had previously earned Uta Hagen her first Tony Award in the play's original Broadway production. The role is a non-glamorous part in its departure from Kelly uh, because usually she's the glammed up, really just beautiful girl. And she actually plays the wife of an alcoholic actor who's played by Bing Crosby. So I really want to see The Country Girl be, uh, just to see this dynamic. Uh, play out but notably here to Judy Garland who was heavily favored to win best actress for her role in the star is born that was a huge upset Garland did, could not attend the ceremony as she had only recently given birth to her third child and cameras were actually set up in her room so she could express her thanks to, in the likely case of her winning Groucho Marx later sent a telegram to her expressing that her loss was the biggest robbery since Brinks so <laughs> that's obviously like you know, you would have loved for Judy Garland to have won. She never won a competitive Oscar. She won the Juvenile Award. Grace Kelly gets it. She's great and beautiful. Audrey Hepburn is nominated in this category. Jane Wyman is nominated in this category. But in this category is the nomination of Dorothy Dandridge for Carmen Jones as Carmen Jones. This is incredibly significant. Dorothy Dandridge became the first African-American actress to receive a nomination for Best Actress. Uh, we know Hattie McDaniel won for uh, Gone with the Wind back in 39 for Best Supporting Actress. But for the lead role, Dorothy Dandridge became the first person to receive 
a nomination for Best Actress, which is incredible. And to this day, there are not many black women who have won Best Lead Actress. It's actually kind of pitiful the who has the, the little amount of who has won with so many great performances, especially a recent note. So, hey, Academy, let's fucking fix that instead of giving just Lifetime Achievement Awards to every actress. I love you, Jessica Chastain, but goddamn, some other women deserve this and specifically black women deserve this award more so thank you Dorothy Dandridge for giving that performance what a stacked cast and moving on to another stacked lineup here we have best actor and best actor going to Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy for On the Waterfront and this is Brando's first of two career Oscar wins out of eight total nominations this win capped a four-year run where he was nominated for best actor the four consecutive nominations is still an Academy record, and he was previously been nominated for A Streetcar Named Desired in 51, Viva Zapata in 1952, and Julius Caesar in 1953. Marlon Brando became the first actor to win Best Actor at the Academy Awards, Best Foreign Actor at the BAFTA Awards, and Best Actor at the Golden Globe Awards for his performance in on the waterfront, and after Brando won the Academy Award for Best Actor, the statue was actually stolen, and much time later, it turned up at a London auction house, which contacted the actor, informed him of its whereabouts, where they were then able to return the award to Brando. So, Ben, I don't know if there's anything last things you kind of want to hit on. We kind of just gushed about Brando in this film and just his career in general. Do we have another two hours? We can. <laughs> I yes, I mean we we gushed about it. I don't even think we did enough gushing over Brando. I, there's nothing more I think I need to say to to prove that this is a great performance other than go out and watch uh, watch this movie and because you're going to be blown away by how Brando is as an actor maybe some people might not truly understand the subtlety of what he does in so many different ways but it's a great performance he's an incredible actor he's a legend he's probably on the Mount Rushmore of actors when you look at it in totality so this is a deserved win. He was knocking on the door the last few years with it. Some argue maybe he should have won for a streetcar back in 51, um, but Humphrey Bogart had beat him. And actually, Humphrey Bogart was nominated this year for the Key Mutiny, so um, so this time Brando kind of best him in that. And so I, I love it. I'm very happy that he won. It. I don't think there's any more I need to say about that. Moving on to Best Director. This one went to Ilya Kazan for On the waterfront so we kind of talked a little bit more about uh, Kazan and how this movie is a representation of what he did so just wanted to give a little bit more history to it so a turning point in Kazan's career came when it was his testimony as a witness before the house committee on un-american activities in 1952 at the time of the hollywood blacklist which brought him strong negative reactions from many friends and colleagues his testimony ended the careers of former acting colleagues morris konofsky and art smith along with the work of playwright clifford odette's Kazan and Odette's had made a pact to name each other in front of the committee. Kazan later justified his act by saying he took the more tolerable of two alternatives that were either way painful and wrong. And nearly a half a century later, his anti-communist testimony continued to cause controversy. Because when Kazan was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1999, dozens of actors chose not to applaud as 250 demonstrators picketed the event outside. So it's extremely controversial uh, what Kazan had had, had done, um, but he wins his Oscar. It's deservedly so. It, this is an incredible film. He's one of, I think he's one of the best directors that we have seen so far. I think that his ability to tap into his actors, I mean, his social issue movies, you know, we talked about him in Gentleman's Agreement 
And the fact that the gentleman's agreement and on the waterfront are made by the same person is astounding because those are two totally different movies in terms of just look and feel, let alone acting. So, yeah, I, I Kazan, he's a great director. What he did, I don't, I, I don't think I can pass judgment on it because I didn't live through that time. So I, I think it's really hard for me to be like, no, damn him, or you know, that was great for him because it was such a nuanced time that. I think I just have to just let history speak for itself and other people's opinions who did live through it. Um, but yeah, I, I think Kazan totally deserved to win this. So um, th- th- this is great. I, you know, again, on the waterfront, getting all the awards, absolutely love it. And the nominees for best motion picture of 1954 are three coins in the fountain, seven brides for seven brothers, the country girl, the cane mutiny and our winner on the waterfront. Sam Spiegel for Columbia Pictures. On the Waterfront is now tied with Gone with the Wind and From Here to Eternity for the most Oscar wins at a time for a total of eight. And it was the third film to receive five acting nominations and the first to receive three in Best Supporting Actor. Ben, any extra final thoughts, anything to add to On the Waterfront? Well, first let's jump into some stats and figures about the movie to show how people really feel about this. So this movie has a 99% of Rotten Tomatoes, which is just slightly above uh, Morbius, which just came out, which people love. Yeah, just slightly <laughs> above the, the 17% it yeah, got. Yeah, just slightly above that. So 99% of Rotten Tomatoes. The average Rotten Tomatoes rating is a 9.18. The top critics percentage is a 100% of a 9.2 rating out of 10 audience score give it a 95 percent with a 4.47 out of 5 imdb gives it an 8.1 metacritic gives it a 91 it won eight total academy awards out of 12 nominations john what do you give on the waterfront i gave on the waterfront my third highest score at a 93 out of 100 i think the more I think about this movie, the more I watched it, the second viewing, it just continued to amplify and kind of continue to pour out so many emotions and complex characters and, and the way that Terry is just kind of stuck in this situation. I, I felt very similar to his situation. I think this film is extremely relatable. I think we've all been in a scenario where we just kind of feel stuck and there's no way out, whether it's a job, it, whether it's a... A relationship that you have with someone or it's a friendship that is just toxic whatever it may be we all have felt kind of stuck in a scenario in our life and and there's sometimes people that are around us that try to convince us to do something the right thing the wrong thing but it's really only going to be up to you to make that decision it's going to be up to you to to succeed in life and to get to the place that you want to be so with that I gave it a 93 why did I take seven points off I, I honestly don't know. I think if I were to watch this film one more time, that number might change. I think there's a couple things here and there that maybe you could cut out here and there. But honestly, the only issue I have with this movie is some of the romantic aspects with Terry and, and Edie. But God, this is a, quite a stunning, beautiful movie. Ben, what is your score for On the Waterfront? So when I first, after we first watched this movie together and I had seen it before, you were, I was really trying hard to be more down on it because I was like, man, the score I gave this thing initially, there's no way, there's no way I can stick to it. There's just, just no way. And it's not possible. I am a lover. I, I do give, I, I, I love to be a little bit more appreciative and, and just to be a little more graceful. So to say all that, I gave On the Waterfront a 99 out of 100 so 
there i'll say this right now there are four movies on, out of the best picture winners that i've given a straight 100 to and um on the waterfront was not one of them it gets the 99 it gets the nearly perfect of perfect scores and the only thing i guess i have to take it out for is i just i really just did not like that one scene where they have all that sound going over um terry telling Edie like what happened with joey to me it just took me right out of the film it just it didn't fit exactly right i think with the, with the whole picture and the whole puzzle of it all and it just seemed more like is that just like a creative artistic thing that kazan is going for and if that is good for him me as the audience i just didn't that wasn't the one thing i could i liked or, and i don't think it would work for me i would not have done it that way that one point yeah one point it's it's one so po- close it's so close and it's shocking i know my roommate even tried to talk me down from it I've, you you're know, psychotic I, I am psychotic I'm, it's insane I'm, a 99 it's what? a nine it's a 99 to me this movie is is one of it's one of my personal favorite movies now when I first watched it I and maybe it was because I watched it during the pandemic and I was like really needing like something to connect me with what was going on and this movie really spoke to me I've now I've watched it now four times in total and every time I just end up loving it and loving it. I watched it last night. I had it on the background while I did work for the podcast. And I do that, te- you know, usually when the movies we're about to talk about it, just to have it let it seep in and soak into me. And there are just so many times where I had to stop my work and just look at the screen. I just had to not just listen to it. I had to see it. I had to take it all in. I love the visuals. I love the confliction. I love Marlon Brando's performance. I love Ava Marie Saint. She is so fucking good she's so good in this movie and like brando's great but she is so good that the, that it becomes a another kind of uh, movie because of her carl malden lee j cobb rod steger all great everyone the whole cast is great pop uh pop doyle is fantastic he delivers line after line the dialogue is sharp it, it's so fucking good and i'm so happy that this movie exists i I just I I have to just say it. It's a 99 to me. To, to me, this is the highest rated movie out of the movie of the 20. Did we watch 27 movies? This is the best one to me so far. This is the one that sticks out to me the most. I don't think you know we're gonna reach some other like really great movies soon, and this one I think is just the jumping off point because of this movie. There's so much more that you can do with movies. You can do so much more character and story and 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 the way things are presented the way you approach film i love this movie so call me crazy whatever you want movies a 99 <laughs> to me so the 99 is crazy just because it's for me it's just so weird that it's like not a 98 or not a 100 so to me like one I, point off is like so bizarre well i there there are like i think three or four other movies i also give a 99 to so then i'll have to see when we get to you'll, that you'll point have to, to see. see and and if you look at i mean you have access to seeing the the I'll call it the spreadsheet. I, I just love calling it the spreadsheet that I have because I've been tracking this shit for a while. And um, recently I just put Coda into the spreadsheet. So I was very happy to see that there. But yeah, I mean, when I look at all these movies, this one just sticks out and it's just that one technical moment that I'm just like, Duh, that wasn't my favorite bit. So if I can't call it per- perfection, I can only call it the next best thing, which <laughs> is a 99, which is a 99. So I, I think that's fair just like summarizing it that way and i haven't gotten that close to 100 but there is a film here that has come up and it may not be the best nominee or it may not be a nominee for best motion picture but it's come up and that is rear window alfred hitchcock's rear window which 
completely snubbed here from Best Motion Picture. I think it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's certainly in the top five for me of, of my favorite films of all time. And that is truly 100 out of 100 for me. That That is like peak filmmaking for me in terms of making a film that's composed of like every human element, whether it's comedy, you know, the horrors of, of humanity and the, the joy of of living with someone relationships like there's so much about that movie and I love the the voyeurism that you get following uh, Jimmy Stewart's character absolutely incredible I just had to kind of mention that and, and note it is a stub and then we also have the lack of a star is born which is also kind of riddled throughout the Academy Awards but no best motion picture nominee here so just a shout out to those had to do it cannot not mention yeah rear window. absolutely love lo- i love rear window it, it's fun to think about like hey on the waterfront and rear window came out the same time um i don't maybe not the same time Isn't during the year but they came the same year yeah it's 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 awesome i mean like shocking it's really cool and the fact that it was snubbed from best picture i mean at least hitchcock had a best director nomination but yeah very bizarre so but uh, at the end of the day, on the waterfront, one for best picture. I'm happy about that, and uh, it, to me, it's great. So right now, John, you're sitting at a straight 72 for your average rating for all these movies, and I'm sitting at a 76.85, so it's 76.9 for these movies. So it's been a it's been a lot. We've talked about a lot of for on the waterfront, but let's answer one more question, and that question is. Is On the Waterfront worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1954? Without a doubt, yes. Yeah, this may shock you. I mean, like, (laughs) I really thought about it, and I was really conflicted. And I was thinking about, do I say yes, or do I say fuck yes? Because fuck yes, (laughs) this movie is worthy of the Best Picture Award. My God, is it the best... It's one of the best of the best pictures. Uh, if you wanted to start picking that apart, I love this movie. There's now over two and a half hours of me just going off about Brando and how much I love him, how much I love this movie. I think I've said it all. Go watch this movie. Please go watch this movie. Please. If I if there's ever an opportunity, if anyone ever hears of this movie playing in a theater, let me know as soon as possible. I will fly across the world to see this fucking thing in the theater because my it deserves that kind of respect. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And if there's anything else I need to really kind of leave us with here, it's could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. <laughs> I could have been somebody. So thank you for listening to Worthy. There, again, there's so much more I think we could have said about this movie, but I think there's a lot more that we can say outside of this. We love talking to everyone about movies. Please send us all your thoughts. Talk to us on Instagram. We love talking to you guys for uh, – for your film takes and we just appreciate you guys listening so thanks for listening to worthy i'm ben i'm john and and this this is worthy he wanted my philosophy of life do it to him before he does it to you i never met anyone like you there's not a spark of sentiment or Romance or human kindness in your whole body. What good does it do you besides get you in trouble? And when when things and, and people get in your way, you just, just knock them aside, get rid of them. Is that your idea? Listen, don't look at me when you say that. It wasn't my fault what happened to Joey. Fixing him wasn't my idea. Who said it was? Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at WorthyPod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. 
Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.